燃え上がれ。エヴァンゲリオン。残
in the history of mecha anime. So it's a little bit after Victory Gundam. It's basically concurrent with uh, Mobile Fighter G Gundam, which G Gundam is a very totally completely different fucking thing, which we I'm very excited to get to that episode. Um, and then after Eva, you get Gundam Wing, and then eventually Gundam Seed, which Gundam Seed especially, you see the influences of Eva um, on that one. So it, it nicely fits in right here, and it's a very important mecha show, so it is important to sort of talk about and give context, and it will definitely give some context to later uh, Gundam-based episodes of Weekly Suit Gundam. But it is also an interesting show to watch in relationship to Gundam, and one of the main reasons that I'm very happy that we did it this way and not the other way is that if we did it the other way, that we watched Eva, you watched Eva first, and then have watched Gundam afterwards, that podcast would have been a lot of you saying a plot thing and then me having to say, and that is what Gundam also did. Like basically anything involving Shinji's characterization very broadly is like the first 13 episodes of Amuro in Mobile Suit Gundam. And it's a lot of like, yeah, and then it's, oh my God, I can't believe Shinji, you know, this is a mecha show where the Gundam or the pilot doesn't want to pilot the mecha. And for someone who knows nothing about mecha anime the way that I vaguely didn't um, the first time watched Eva in probably like 2012-ish, um, it was like, a, yeah, I guess that's a novel concept. And then you watch Mobile Suit Gundam from 1979. You're like, oh, this is not in any way a novel concept at all. Um, and so not to say that Eva is totally derivative. It's not. But it, it exists in a tradition of mecha anime that if you don't have any background for it, things that it does may seem amazing to you. And then when you do have the background for it, those kinds of things are just like, yes, this is what this kind of mecha show does. Yes, this is like the Gundam, or the, I'm going to say Gundam pilot a lot for Shinji. This is what the pilot does. They have depression. They don't want to get in the thing. They've got daddy issues and mommy issues, so on and so forth. Those are very standard tropes. Um, and so the, the where Eva makes deviations are going to be important for future episodes of Gundam stuff. But it, it, it exists within the flow of Gundam uh, you know, Hideaki Anno, creator of Neon Justice Evangelion, was a massive Gundam fan. He interviewed Yoshiki Tomino. He did an interview with Tomino about Victory Gundam around the time of the finale of Victory Gundam coming out. So it's like Gundam is super important to Anno. Gundam is super important to Eva. And then Eva, because of its tremendous success, becomes very important to Gundam in the future as well. Yeah, so I think all of that is good context. And I'll just say... One of the things that I think is probably a project of this episode we're doing today, Sean, is maybe to push back against, if not dispel, the most commonly heard refrain I hear about Evangelion, which is that it's a deconstruction of mecha anime. Yes, the sentence that is on the Wikipedia article, by the way. I was looking at the Wikipedia article for Neon Genesis Evangelion, and near the top it says, known as a deconstruction of mecha anime. I'm like, "Eh, is it though? Yeah. I don't think it is. I'll just put my cards on the table. I really don't think it is. But we will get there. That'll be part of the discussion, won't it, Sean? Yes. Um, so, yes. So, that is that is our thesis. That is our Cruel Angels thesis. Um, just kidding. Our, our real Cruel Angels thesis is that the theme song is the best part of this show. Which we should probably just yeah. say up front. Because no discussion of Evangelion is complete without noting. It does have one of probably like the ten best anime songs of all time. Oh yes, absolutely. Cruel Angel's thesis. And and just the whole way the opening is put together. Like top ten anime openings ever. Like no question. We, we, are, we are going to be contrarian on some stuff about Eva. Relative to the general opinion on it. But that is not one where I disagree with people's feelings on the show. Yes, Cruel Angel's thesis fucking slaps. It's amazing. I listen to it a lot. I like it. 
It's great. So now should we maybe rip the Band-Aid off a little bit and tell people where we're coming from on this? Um, yeah, so let's start with you, Jonathan, because I feel like that's how we usually do this, is, is let's start with general impressions from you, general impressions from me, then I want to give a little bit more broader context for where Eva comes from, because I think that's going to be very important for the discussion, and then we can dive into kind of really, really going into it. So you watched it, you just finished watching it yesterday, right? Yes. Yeah, so you were very and- fresh off of, again, the first 26 episodes, or the 26 episodes of the TV show. We will talk about the movies on the next episode, um, just because I feel like it's really important for you to be able to talk about episodes 25 and 26 without having End of Eva spoil your perspective of it, because it's a TV show. It should be able to be viewed entirely on its own. You shouldn't have to watch a movie to, like, get any additional context, and I... And I personally like 25 and 26 as an ending for the show more than the movie um, in a lot of ways. And so I, I, that is, for people that are maybe wondering why we're doing the TV show and then the movie later, I think it's important to just look at the TV show as its own thing. Understand it first as its own thing because that's how I did it. I didn't watch End of Evangelion until I watched the whole show through the second time on Netflix. And then once you have that understanding, moving on to End of Eva, I think that's a better way to do it than just smushing it all together because then I think End of Eva really distorts a lot of your perspective of things from the original show that I don't think is, like, always good, I guess, is what I would say for that. Yes. So I have seen, as you said, the 26 episodes. I have not seen the End of Evangelion. I I know vaguely some things I have heard through the ether about it because it is Evangelion and it's hard to not have heard certain things. Um, But I do not know like what happens or how it rewrites the ending. Um, So we are talking just about the television show. This was my first time ever watching it. And I was pretty thoroughly underwhelmed, particularly for the first half of the show. I think the opening episodes, there's some good stuff here and there. There's some good sequences. It settles into a groove where like, I feel like people this this is not part of the legacy of Eva as like I got it through the ether that the first 13 episodes are like 95% sexual harassment between characters and like it's all and I'm not even kidding it's it's like most episodes especially in the like 7 to 13 range are mostly sex comedy that's really pervy and really to me just fucking rolling my eyes every five seconds with like a little tiny bit of mech action at the very end of the episode like that's most of the first half of eva episode 14 which ironically is to me like the most important fucking clip show of all time because it's the turning point of eva for me is that it has this really good clip show in the first half and then this really interesting like avant-garde short film about ray in the second half and i feel like something like clicks into place a little bit and the second half of eva to me is vastly more interesting it's it's Anno like becomes more confident as a director he kind of lets his avant-garde freak flag fly they kind of go into character psychology and internal storytelling a lot more I don't think the show ever at any point hangs together as a television series like as a series that like has an overarching continuity or plot or themes I don't think it ever works on that level I think it can work frequently on the level of individual episode, particularly in the second half. I think like episodes 18, 19, basically 18 through 24, I think are fantastic. And there's a lot of really good stuff in there. And 25 and 26 are, if nothing else, very interesting um, because they are, there's, I've never seen anything else quite like them. Um, And then I think the show can also sometimes work on the level of like the individual sequence, like the end of episode nine, where Shinji and Asuka have to like, 
do this like dance together with their mechs to defeat the angel most of that episode annoys me because it's dumb sex comedy but the end where like there's a timer on screen and they're doing the action sequence is fantastic so i think eva has some very good sequences i think it has some very good episodes i would not say neon genesis evangelion is a good show in fact i might say it's a bad show but that's just me but now that all our listeners have left yeah, no, it's not yeah. just you because it's also me. Um, and, and this is where, for a long time, I have had this feeling of, like, I don't really think Eva's that good. Because when I first watched it, in about, again, I think it would be 2012-ish, because I think we were in the condo at the time, it just didn't make much of an impression on me. And I was just like, because it was around the time where I started watching a lot more anime, around the time I started learning Japanese, and I was like, this is okay. And, it, and I never really talked about it, because it's like, Prob like because every because that was especially before this sort of like reawakening of interest in Eva, where I feel like there is a lot more common criticism of the things of the flaws that Eva has. Um, back then, before it was just like, oh, this is like the cult anime of the '90s that is this like masterpiece that everyone loves, and I was like, I uh, it seemed fine, um, and so I never talked about it, and then watching it again now having a lot more framework and context for it seeing Gundam just like learning things about the world and people and studying at like college and stuff now it's like oh no I get why I think this show just doesn't fundamentally work on a number of really important levels like you Jonathan like especially as a TV show as as a episodes 1 to 26 here's 26 episodes of a TV show beginning middle end of a story um, I think in many ways it just sort of fails at that. Um, I think for me, I break the show pretty cleanly into four different sections. Episodes one to six are okay. Like the intro stuff, it sets up some interesting characters. I think like the pilot in particular has really good direction and animation to it because it's, you know, gets the most money basically put into it because it's the first episode. Seven to 14 are mostly bad because that's where it's Angel of the Week. That's where you get the the highest concentration of bad fan, anime fan service. Um, I think most of that like early Oscar stuff is just bad. Um, Fifteen to twenty is I think the peak of the show. That's where like it gets pretty fucking good. It has the good clip show episode, which is a huge rarity in anime. Um, it's where you get all the stuff with I think it's Toji is the name of the dude who gets into the other one, right? He's the friend of Shinji. Yes. Um, yeah, like that arc. He is really the effective. fourth children. Yes, he's the fourth children um, or fourth child. If you want, you know, we we maybe we'll address a little bit of like the Netflix read translation and stuff like that because some of that stuff's kind of funny. Um, and then twenty one to twenty six, I think, is very uneven. There's stuff in it I like a lot. Um, there's stuff in it that I'm like I think it's twenty one to twenty six has some of the most interesting ideas, and the execution of it is flawed both because it, everything in it is so poorly set up because the first half of the show is bad and then also because they just didn't have any time or money to actually finish any of those episodes so some of them running out of time and money makes it more interesting in some ways some of it also makes like mm, maybe this holding on this shot for like a solid minute maybe that's a little bit too much of you running out of money you really you, 30 seconds and it would have had the impact 30 more seconds and i feel like maybe my tv is broken kind of thing um so yeah i think and so in that way, I think, Jonathan, our, our opinions on it mostly align. That there's lots of bad comedy. There's lots of stuff that it feels like the show thinks that it's doing, like, a thing where it's, like, trying to criticize something about these tropes. And it's not. Like, it's just doing them um, and doing them poorly most of the time. 
and one of the reasons why I'm glad that we're doing Eva is that I think it will really help recontextualize some of our conversations in like Double Zeta in Victory Gundam about the sexualization of women in those shows, which is more relative to Mobile Suit Gundam and Zeta Gundam. But when we would talk about like Kara Soon and Double Zeta, and I would say things like, I mean, yes, it's worse, but it's but it on in the on the scale, it barely even registers as a blip to me. One of the things I was thinking of saying stuff like that was Neon Genesis Evangelion, where you have like every single scene that has basically any female character in it cannot help but have the camera conspicuously placed to look at their ass or like down their dress, basically, is is almost every single shot that has a Misato or a Rei or an Asuka or a Ritsuko in it, which is most of the shots in the fucking show. It can't help but to leer at and objectify basically every single female character. Uh, and and so it's it will be a useful way for us to to balance the scale a little bit relative to other things in the mecha genre. If we look at Neon Genesis Evangelion and we look at what it means to for a series like this to objectify its female characters, because it is on a different fucking level. Yeah, no, I mean Evangelion. One of the first things that should be said is it is, I think, holistically terrible with its female characters. Yeah, I think it is terrible at writing them. I think it is terrible at giving them arcs. I think it is terrible at representing them uh, visually. Uh, not like the, the character designs are good. I just mean the direction stuff you're talking about. And then it's terrible at all this stupid fan service, sex harassment bullshit. Um, you know, I I, I want to say up front, there are things obviously Evangelion does very well. Yes. It is one of the best directed anime i've ever seen like it is directorially i think particularly in the second half and even when it is like running out of money it is such a directorially bold show like i was using on twitter describing this i think there are sequences in the second half that are virtuoso like that there's like you can sense like genius going on in how like directorially sharp some of these sequences are um and that's amazing and it's actually kind of an interesting thing about the show in that it can show you how I feel like sometimes direction and writing do not have to go in the same direction because that's mm -hmm. a lot of Eva for me. You know, I think the vocal performances are great. Um, what's her name? Is it Megumi Ota? Um, or whoever voices Shinji. Yes, it's Megumi... I, I can't remember her last name. I have it right here. I'll find it in a second. Megumi Ogata. Ogata. I was really close. Uh, Megami Ogata, I think that is an all-time great performance. I think her, her work as Shinji is fantastic. Separate from, I don't really like or find Shinji consistent as a character, I think that is a wonderful vocal performance that she gives. Um, and, and everyone else is good too, obviously, but I just think that's one that I would like particularly praise. The music is extremely good. Some of it is plagiarized. We can talk about that <laughs> later. Um, but it's still good, you know. If you're plagiarizing good music, you you know, put good in, good, good, get good out, as yeah. Juicy Juice would say. Um, yeah, so, like, there are good things. But, you know, uh, I'm sorry to all our fans who... I know we have listeners who <laughs> like Eva a lot. And I just want to say right now, I'm glad you like Eva a lot. It's okay. We're not targeting you personally. No, yeah, and yes. And we will try to address, like, there are lots of things about Eva that are really good. Like, I don't... It's, it's not like it's a mystery to me why the show is beloved in the ways that it's beloved. Because there, there are things about it that I think are amazing. And, like, you know, it sits with me well uh, in those ways. And it's the thing that's, like, I sure do love Shin Godzilla a lot. Because it's, for me, Shin Godzilla is basically all the good stuff of Eva with almost none of the bad stuff of Eva. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, like, those qualities of Anno's direction that are incredible. And his ability to create um, this really sort of... Um, 
you know this this disorienting kind of space that that feels um sort of this like sort of uncanny terror that he's very good at expressing um he you know he never makes things that are like outright it's this is like a horror show or horror movie but the way that he injects this very kind of pseudo Lovecraftian horror quality to his works um i think is is incredible and so that stuff when eva just leans really hard into that stuff it's like two thumbs up awesome that's amazing but it doesn't do that stuff enough for me and then the other stuff that it does do i think it does very poorly generally um and that's that's the the problem with it as a whole yeah so do you want to move into sort of the table setting context stuff yeah so let's yeah let's get a little bit more context because i do think it helps kind of give us a sense of one like i think there's a couple of things that are important to understand about why eva feels kind of different in some ways from gundam since we've only ever talked about gundam stuff on on this show so this is the mid 90 uh, mid 90s so we are in the middle of an economic downturn in japan we're post the bubble economy right anime industry is facing a lot of struggles at this point stuff like um victory gundam is not as successful as its predecessors um just like financially speaking and so there's a lot of shifting going on in the anime industry and it's just not making as much money as it used to and then you have studio gynax come in to create Neon Genesis Evangelion. So Gainax is the studio that Hideaki Anno is one of the founding members of. It originally started as a fan community. And so a lot of fans who grew up with anime, Anno would have grown up in like the 70s. He was born in like, I think the mid 60s. So they grew up with stuff like Space Battleship Yamato. And then eventually when they were like all like older teenagers is around the time that Gundam would have come out. And so they grew up loving mecha stuff, super robot shows, Gundam when it came out. Um, and then eventually created this fan studio and they would create like fan films, fan projects, kinds of things that would show off at festivals um, and conventions. And then eventually they became like a proper actual anime production studio. They created Gunbuster is probably the best known thing they made, which I have not seen, but I want to check out at some point, um, which Anno directed it, Gainax uh, developed it. And so they started getting more success in that sense, but at its core, Hideaki Anno is a super hardcore otaku guy. Like that, like that is who he is. And so, like you, I think one of the reasons why it's good to watch Gundam and have a sense of Mecha going into Eva is because that is the background that the creator has, and it is obvious. Like it is very clear that Anno and the other people working at the studio are very aware of the tropes and like archetypes of this genre the super robot genre of Ultraman, which is also a huge influence on Eva and everything else. And that's one of the things that sets it apart from something like a Gundam, where Gundam was made mostly by people who did not grow up with anime because it would have been physically impossible for them to because anime did not exist when they were kids. They are, you know, Tomino was part of the first generation of creators of what we would like now really look at as the first sort of proper anime that exists within like that continuity and is not just here's like a weird sort of random Japanese animated short film that was made in like 1930 or something. They were part of that generation that brought up like the anime industry kind of as we know it today. And so this is really the first time on Weekly Suit Gundam that we are watching something that was made by someone who was influenced by the things that we've already been talking about and is creating something specifically for that same audience. Neon Genesis Evangelion would have been created for an otaku audience by otaku creators, something that, you know, is now very common in the anime industry, has not been up till now with the stuff that we've been looking at, at least. Um, so that's how it kind of comes into creation. 
Neon Genesis Evangelion is originally slated for its full 26 episodes, so the ending being like what it is is not the same scenario that Gundam had of where it wasn't popular and then they just like cut the legs out from under it and said, you wanted 52 episodes, well, you're getting 43. Um, that's not what it was. They were signed up for 26. They made 26. But it was not a, um, let's say, well-oiled production machine when they were making EVA. So they very quickly went um, over budget and behind schedule on putting out episodes. There was stuff of them, um, once they get to the second half, having to desperately rewrite things because they didn't have a clear idea of anything of where the series was going while they were making it after a certain point. So lots of major ideas about the series changed dramatically. The entire ending changes dramatically um, over the course of that. They're doing stuff of like having to... Um, rewrite elements of the story to fit in and like make it make sense to have sections that were like animated for the next on previews of the previous episode to still make sense with the rewrites they did with the subsequent episode because they couldn't afford to reanimate those sequences because they just couldn't afford to do it and so they're once they get near the end they're really cobbling things together leading to episodes 25 and 26 which sort of are infamously very thin in terms of animation i think overall like they're really impressive um with how they reuse things to create they're not clip shows they are like their own episodes in their own right but they reuse animation heavily in those episodes and they are on a true shoestring budget at that point but eva is hugely successful it very quickly accumulates a large audience um, and then once it's clear that that audience is there, they very quickly green light um, the movies that they make afterwards, Death and Rebirth, which is a recap of the series up to 20, episode 24, and then End of Evangelion, which is a half rewrite of, half expansion of the episodes 25 and 26 as they existed in the TV show. And, and at that point, Eva is on top of the fucking world. It's making huge amounts of money. End of Eva was a massive box office success. They are merchandising the shit out of Evangelion. It is very funny to like look up um, articles that have been written at places like Kotaku about just the ridiculous bundles of Eva merch from like shampoo to like fucking cup holders or what. Like it's just everything, anything you could imagine. There's probably some sort of Eva, Eva like marketed merchandised version of that thing out there. They make a bunch of video games. They make a video game on PlayStation 2 that in Japan was just called Neon Genesis Evangelion 2. And over here is called Neon Genesis Evangelions, which I think is a very funny title for a thing um, that expands on the Evangelion mythos. There's a bunch of manga series, um, just like everything under the sun you can imagine. Eva puts out something of it. And if you put Eva on it, it's probably going to sell well. Um, And then eventually, you know, up to the modern period where we have the what is now going to be four Evangelion rebuild movies, which are sort of retellings of, and then like new versions of the Eva story, which I have not seen any of those. I'll probably try to check them out once the fourth one's actually out. But point being, Eva is massively successful, hugely popular. It becomes successful in the international market as well. becomes a cult classic in places like the American market, obviously. Um, And because of its huge success, Eva is one of the main shows that is partially responsible for the sort of creation of the modern late night anime um, sort of time slot. So for people who don't know, most anime that you would watch on a service like Crunchyroll, the anime that gets like, this is like a 12 episode run and that's all it ever gets. Those air super late at night. I'm saying like 12 o'clock, one in the morning, like adult swim style time slots um, that are made for generally an older demographic. 
they are made also to sell merchandise, to sell the Blu-rays, like special limited edition figures, all that kind of stuff. And Eva is one of the shows that sort of proves that a show, a series that sort of panders in some ways to the otaku market is going to be very successful. It proves that shows that are targeted towards a more adult market can be successful. Um, that, you know, you can do a show like this and it can make a huge amount of money. Um, and that kind of helps carve out a whole suave um, for like television programming that still you're seeing that influence in how anime is made today because everything else we've talked about up till now, Gundam, all that stuff was made for like probably about like the eight to 13 ish market. It never, Gundam was never actually popular with that market. It was always popular with like the age, like 14 to 23 or whatever. Like it's that teenage to young adult market. Even victory Gundam was supposed to be for kids. Victory Gundam is not for kids. Don't show a kid Victory no. Gundam. You will scar them. Um, but it, but they always aired in those kinds of time slots. Eva did not air in that time slot. Eva was not designed for that. Um, and so it, it getting the massive success it had changes the way that um, – or it helps change. I don't want to like overcredit Eva too much because there's other stuff happening at the same time, obviously. But it is a significant force in changing the way that anime is programmed and marketed and monetized. Uh, and then Eva also then obviously a lot of it's sort of more adult themes, the sort of like sexual stuff, um, the biomech thing, which never all the way gets into Gundam, but definitely a lot of other biomech type shows start coming out around the time of Eva. Um, like that stuff also all helps kind of shift things in the mecha anime genre and helps, you know, it pushes things to get a little bit more psychologically heavy, um, a little bit more fan servicey for sure. And then also here's some like weird monstery bio bullshit that you're also going to throw in there. Um, and that's sort of the general context I want us to have going into this discussion. Yes, very interesting. And also helps to explain why, you know, this is one of the very, very few anime that could get the kind of worldwide release it got on Netflix with that level of hype, you know? Yeah. Um, there's a very small handful that would get that kind of like marketing and attention and you know budget behind doing a whole new redub and subtitle track and all of that although the netflix version does very very sadly omit one of the best parts of the show which is the closing theme which is a cover of fly me to the moon yeah. and replaces it with an inexplicably downbeat piece of score which does not fit at all um or, or it like very notably changes the tone of the ending sequences um i do love fly me to the moon that, yeah. that cover yeah, so. so so yeah, that's where we are with with Eva. Um, and then yes, obviously now we have the Netflix versions. Um, it is a shame that they pull "Fly Me to the Moon" out of it because because it's not just "Fly Me to the Moon." They do a bunch of different covers of "Fly Me to the Moon." That's like here's um, Katsuragi's voice actress singing it. Here's Ray's voice actress singing it. Um, I assume they just couldn't license it for whatever reason. But yeah, there are yeah, a couple I don't of think those I... kinds of changes. But you know, they kept "Cruel Angel's Thesis." If they had pulled out "Cruel Angel's Thesis," that would have been just like. There's no show now. Yeah, right? then, then you just pirate it. Like, legitimately, if you're watching Eva and yes. for whatever reason <laughs> Cruel Angel's thesis isn't attached to it, like, you're losing maybe about 50% of the appeal of the show to me, at least. Yes. All right. So that's the background. Now we need to talk about the show. There is so much to get into. Um, where do you think we should start, Sean? Um, so I think there's, there's a couple of different ways we could approach it. We could either approach it by looking at those four different subsections of the show 
um, which I think basically you you had a similar tweet at some point um, that, that yes, more or less aligned with that because I think the show pretty cleanly breaks down that way. Or we can talk about the characters. I'll I'll leave it up to you, Jonathan, how you want to kind of take this one. Let's start at the beginning and kind of talk about that early phase. Um, and character stuff will inevitably bleed into this, so we'll follow it where we go. Yeah, I should also note that I have not watched this since like June or July. So for me, this a lot of this stuff is not as fresh. So a lot of the details I'm going to have to leave up to you, Jonathan, to um, regale us with because I only remember most of like the themes and the broad strokes and like what happens in episode four. I do not remember off the top of my head. So I'll have you kind of try to take the reins here and I'll chime in um, when there's something that pops up that I think is really important. Okay. Well, uh, it's very fresh for me. Although I will say I moved through the first half of the show much slower than I moved through the second half. Uh, But yeah, so that first episode, my frustration started almost immediately with this show because the first episode is is enormously well directed. It's very well animated. I mean, in general, even when Ava has like budget issues near the end, other than the very final two episodes, I think Ava is generally a much better animated show than your standard 90s anime. Like I think it, mm-hmm. it it's got just more detail in the backgrounds. It seems like it's got more frames of animation in in certainly the movements of things like you know, I started watching um, for a, a future episode, Sean, Mobile Fighter G Gundam. Mobile Fighter G Gundam does not have, like, the level of, like, love and care put into the animation that Evangelion does. Um, yeah. And not a criticism, just, like, this this show clearly had a different sort of, you know, it's a more independent show, too, because Gainax is this new small studio. Um, you know, so all of that struck me immediately, but I was immediately frustrated with kind of how they characterize Shinji and how they set up the world because episode one and it wouldn't be so much of a problem if the show gets past this this issue but the problem is this this these problems I'm about to describe kind of linger all the way to the end of episode 26 is that first episode is really good at setting like tone and scale I think coming out of the first 25 minutes though I have no idea what like the state of the world is I couldn't tell you what the second cataclysm... What is it? The second impact is? Yeah, second impact. Um, I can't tell you what an Evangelion is. I can't tell you what an angel is. I can't tell... And the most important thing is... I can't tell you why Shinji needs to be the one in the Eva. And I can't tell you why he agrees to do it. And that is a problem that, to me, most of that persists through the entire show. Like... If I, I, I'm, I hope I, I can resist just making comparisons to Gundam every five seconds, but fuck it, Gundam is in the title of this podcast. At the end of 25 minutes of Mobile Suit Gundam, and I know this is unfair because Mobile Suit Gundam has maybe the best first episode of any anime I've ever seen. Um, like that or like fucking original Dragon Ball, you know, like mm-hmm. just perfect first episode. Um, you know, because by the end of that, I know a lot of the characters very well. I know what the state of the world is. I know what the stakes are. I know what the larger conflict is. And I know who Amuro Ray is, what his personality is, why he has to be the one to get in the Gundam, and why he does it. I get all of that. And I am... There's none of that to me in the first episode of Ava. And and then in the second episode of Ava, you get a really... I actually really like the second episode of Ava and how it is so disorientingly edited, I think is like interesting because the second... Because the first episode ends, he's about to fight the angel. The second episode picks up, they like throw a punch and then it cuts to him in the hospital 
and most of the episode is him like getting into his daily routine and it's very disorienting and then it does a flashback to the fight and it's it's maybe the best like single just animated fight in the show i think there are ones that have more interesting direction but it's incredible um but still i don't really understand why shinji gets in the mech I don't really understand why he needs to get in the mech. They keep going with this and like there's all these people around him who are keep throwing this this scarred little boy in a mech suit and I'm like, "Why? There doesn't really seem to be any reason you need to have this scarred little boy in the mech suit." And by the end of the 26 episodes, I'm very confident they did not need to put the scarred little boy in the mech suit. Um, but we can get to that later. There is just this general sense of like the show is a lot of sound and fury with uh, like, like I think there's a fine line between interesting ambiguity that immerses you in a world and ambiguity where I don't think they fully know what the world is because they're not really putting any of it out there in a way that I can even begin to understand. Does that make sense? Yes, um, because I agree with you. And I think it's one of the biggest issues with Eva overall is I think the world building is like classically awful. Um, and it's something yes. where, you know, I... I get that there's a certain amount of them wanting to disorient the viewer um, and and make them feel uncomfortable in that way. And I think and I think episode two is a really good example of that done well, where it's okay. Yes, like you cut out or you skip the fight. You you kind of get used to Shinji with like with this weird him going to high school and all this bullshit. Um, and then eventually at the end, yeah, you get the he remembers or whatever the fight that happens, and you get that. Um, like that is a cool way to handle that and that is done well and it helps kind of to build up the kind of characters in the world well in that small sense but Eva's never good at instilling in you this feeling that okay maybe they're not telling me a lot of stuff right now but there is something behind the surface that is important that will be revealed later or that is informing what's going on that sensation is never there for me it is always this like Smoke and mirrors, like, we're like, haha, like, here's Gendo is doing his cryptic bullshit, um, but there's nothing underpinning the cryptic bullshit. There's no sense that there is some, like, deep, dark truth um, to what is going on that is going to reveal things to you or that you could dig into and speculate about in a way that feels interesting. It always feels like they're just sort of, like, you know, waving shining keys in front of your face on one hand and like furiously typing the dialogue for the next scene with the other, trying to vaguely piece together some sort of bullshit. Um, and and you can, I can kind of forgive some of that in the earliest episodes because, you know, it's the early episodes. They don't necessarily have to establish everything about the world. But then by the time you get to the end of the show, you realize, oh, they really don't know anything about any of this stuff. Like there's no, like if you want to dig into a wiki, um, you can get some answers about some questions, vaguely speaking. Um, and End of Eva gives some more clarification. But there, but it doesn't ever make you feel satisfied that this is a well-thought-out, like internally consistent, coherent world that these characters inhabit. That The show just never kind of gets to that place. And instead, it just sort of throws a bunch of like vague, weird, Judeo-Christian, like Abrahamic bullshit to... You know, to exoticize it for a Japanese market, to make a lot of people in the West go like, well, what are they saying about religions? They're not saying anything about religion. They're not using this in an intentional way. They're using it in a way that, like, we use ninjas in Western fiction. It's just like, ah, it's just a ninja. I don't know. And they'll say some, like, Buddhist mantra that you Googled, um, that, like, the scriptwriter Googled the day before turning in the script. This is like put this in here without thinking about the meaning or the implications of any of it. Like, it's just sort of, we say the word Adam, we'll say the word Lilith, 
we'll throw around some of that terminology, but it will never be something that like coheres the world together into a consistent thing. Um, and yeah, I feel like you you get that sensation already in episode one, particularly with Gendo, because Gendo is like the vehicle for cryptic non-exposition throughout the entire show. Two points off of that, because yeah. I agree with everything you're saying. And that's that's why I think Eva is at its best when it is just avant-garde. And there are, especially in the second half of the show, a lot of the show just goes pure, sort of out of the realm of narrative expression. It is not, like, it does not, it ceases to be narratively representational for long sequences. And those can be very effective because you're not really being asked to worry about a story. Because storytelling, I don't think, is what this show does well. And if anything, I wish it kind of drove into that further because a big tension in the second half of the show is that they are kind of trying to land the plane on the narrative storytelling while doing all the avant-garde stuff. And then with 25 and 26, they they abandon ship, they jump out of the plane, and there is no more story. So all of that ultimately means nothing because this show has not even the faintest trace of narrative resolution um, at any point in the, in the story. Um so that's one thing that is like an, a ten, and sometimes a very interesting tension in the show, like a productive tension. Um, the second thing is with, I, I'll just have to say it now, Gendo Ikari frustrates me so fucking much as a character because he is transparently, obviously, from the moment you meet him, the antagonist of the piece. He is the bad guy. He's the guy pulling the strings. He is evil. He is like obviously and overtly evil and the more you learn about him the more you learn he is the evil bad guy pulling the strings and again i haven't seen end of eva maybe somehow i'm wrong here i don't think i am i think he's the bad guy and you have all these people working for the bad guy and sometimes like misato will express a little discomfort with that but no one really like does anything about it it finally like in episode like 22 you finally get shinji being like i think this guy's kind of fucking evil i'm gonna leave and then he comes back because he's dumb, but he's less dumb than everyone else on the show. And they just keep working for the bad guy. And I don't really have a sense of, like, why I should care about any of these people. It's like if on Gundam, instead of Captain Bright on the white base, it was just Girenzabi. And he was doing Girenzabi things. And once in a while, Amuro was like, man, do you think we should be gassing all these colonies? And they'd be like, eh. And then they keep working for Girenzabi. It kind of baffles me because i think the explanation for why shinji needs to be in the gundam is because gendo said so but he's the bad guy i don't get it yeah maybe i sound like an idiot to eva fans right now i very much might but that is my interpretation and it frustrated me to no end especially when you get to the big flashback episode which is episode 21 which just very concretely tells you yeah no he's the evil guy who's been doing shit behind the scenes like he's really bad yeah, I, and then like, it never gets resolved. End of Eva gives <laughs> us a little bit of resolution on that end, but also like you're not particularly wrong. Like I think I think Gendo is one of the major problems with the show because it just it's another example. It means the same thing with the world building. Like they they vaguely allude to stuff with him, but you almost get no insight into it at all. And it's a lot of like it's very Metal Gear. It's very like. Who, which, what side is he working for? Is he playing this side against this side against this side against... Like, what side is he on? And I honestly, even with, like, End of Eva, I, I don't actually know at some point. Like, I, I vaguely remember what his ultimate goal is. I don't think the TV show ever actually gets to that fucking point. Um, but it's not ever satisfying. And it never explains, like, 
why everybody fucking loves Gindo so much. Like, like the, he has like three women that are just like hopefully, hopelessly in love with him. Um, between Yui, uh, Shinji's mom, that you only get like little hints of from the past. You have Ray, which I guess I kind of get it with her because fucking weird clone bullshit. And then you have Ritsuko. Oh, and then you have Ritsuko's mom. So you have four, actually. Ritsuko's mom, who when she is rejected by Gendo, strangles a child to death and then kills herself because the worst thing that could possibly happen to a woman in the world of Eva is being told they are a hag by the obvious and overt villain of the piece. Yeah, and Gendo just sucks. And there's nothing redeeming about him. Like, you know, like Kaji fucking sucks and he's awful. But, like, at least he's, like, this handsome playboy dude. So, like, I get it. Like, I get that there's, like, a bad boy attractiveness to him. Gendo just sucks. There's nothing about him that is charismatic. Um, Like, I don't even necessarily usually get the sense that he's actually smart. um, Because he never says anything or does anything effective. Um, Like, he's clearly, you know, it, it is, like, going back to a Gundam type comparison, he's a little bit... Um, like early Captain Bright in, in Mobile Suit Gundam in the sense of every single thing he does with his pilot, in this case Shinji, is the worst possible thing you could do that is leading you to the first po- worst possible conclusion for accomplishing your goals. Like, if you want to have him be the pilot of the fucking Eva, it would be so easy for Gendo to do a couple of things and just have Shinji do whatever Gendo wants to do because Shinji has no affection in his life and he wants affection from his dad. Gendo, dude, you could manipulate Shinji so easily. Instead, he fucks it up so bad at every single turn that the narrative has to contort itself into getting Shinji back into the Eva for the plot to continue. And it's just like, why does this character suck so much? He's, he's annoying to watch. It's annoying that, no, that characters almost never call him out and they only a little bit near the end. You get a little bit more of it in the Eva, but it's still not enough. And then... Yeah, and then it's just over. And in the TV show, you get almost nothing with him, and it's just done. And it, it frustrates me, because he at least has, like, you know, I enjoy as much as anybody the shot of Gendo with his fingers steepled and, like, the light reflecting off of his glasses and him saying something cryptic. Like, that is, there's a there's a primal satisfaction in an anime way of having cryptic characters say cryptic things while the light reflects off his glasses in such a way that you can't see his eyes. Like, yes, I get it. That's a cool shot. But that shot is basically his entire character. And that's not good. Like, that's, that, that is one of the main things responsible for this show just sort of hitting a bunch of walls whenever it's trying to actually dig deeper into the, like, the A-level story and the setting and the world building and, like, the overall motivations and objectives of things happening in the world. One of the reasons why none of those things can get resolved is because they never, I feel like, actually congeal Gendo into a coherent character. Yeah, so to bring it back to, like, these opening episodes, my my problem with that, and I think it's an original sin to, to borrow the kind of religious terminology Ava would no doubt approve of, of the show is that that first episode is this sad little boy getting bullied by a bunch of adults he doesn't know and his abusive father into getting into a metal death suit and going to fight a monster. And that could be an interesting deconstruction of the anime genre, but I really don't feel at any point in the next 25 episodes it goes that far beyond it because it's not just Gendo who is horribly manipulating and abusing this little boy. It's every other adult on the show, and most of them are never held to account for it. 
and and most of what and this is why when we get to the end and i i know we're just gonna be jumping around a little bit i think because if this show kind of jumps around uh, the ending does not sit well with me in part because i want shinji to get away from all these bad abusive people who are hurting him um because he deserves better i think he's a good boy um and he's being horribly abused and manipulated by everyone in his life um but i don't think the show is fully aware of that uh but that's just me yeah no and i agree and it just feels like like on paper it's really not particularly different from mobile suit gundam like on mobile suit gundam amuro gets into the gundam originally because he really has no choice um and then he is constantly manipulated by people in power to stay in the gundam because they have nobody else that can pilot it because they're fighting a desperate war and trying to survive and so it's the same basic plot setup. It's the same fundamental thing that, like, and not just Mobile Suit Gundam, most of the Gundam series before Eva and after Eva have this kind of setup. Um, but they, I feel like there's a much better sense in Mobile Suit Gundam of the show being aware of and giving us, like, broader perspectives of how and why that manipulation happens and giving us better insight into, like, the humanity of Captain Bright and what he's going through and why he slaps Amuro, you know? Like, he physically abuses Amuro. But you understand why all those characters are in those places, even if I think, like, Bright gets fucked up, you shouldn't be doing that. There's a fundamental level of character insight that you're given um, that Eva, in trying to play so coy and be cryptic with things, it starts sort of just, like, undercutting its own ability to develop narrative tension effectively, but then also to actually, like, develop the themes of the show because it ends up in most places being this very one note doldrums. Like, you know, it's, it's clearly about depression. It's about like Shinji has depression. He has this sort of inability to um, gain affection from people. And even if he does get affection from people, he doesn't actually get any joy from it because he has depression, but the show never is able to get outside of that very one note perspective on that thing which is something that I think feel like is a bad thing for a show about or any story about depression to do is to let itself get slotted into this like very sort of like thin rail, um, which is what it feels like if you're in the middle of a depressive episode, that that's all that is there is in the world. And for a, sh a whole 26 episode show to be in that mode for almost the entire thing, um, like it's fine for the first couple of episodes. And I think there are things, especially visually about those first few episodes in particular that execute on that concept in that emotion really effectively, but it never is able to vary that or gain a broader perspective outside of that, which I think is both bad just from a, like it's, you know, depression is not actually a one note thing. It is a multitude of different experiences. It is a, there's a spectrum there that you move through. So it's like not a great perspective on depression in that way it's not great i think for people who have depression to see it represented in this very one note way and then it also just becomes boring as a story because it doesn't vary itself up enough um in terms of its sort of thematic analysis and its character analysis of shinji which just is so frustratingly like we got to get him back into the eva and make him depressed again because anytime he kind of gets away from that the show doesn't know what to do with that so we just got to get him back and make him depressed again because we can't move past that point um, until the show like slowly dies a slow death trying to vaguely make Shinji be kind of happy for one second yes um and I know we're kind of all over the place now but just this is why I bring up all this stuff about Gendo and how abused Shinji is and manipulated because I think the show also has a weird view of depression where 
So I want to split it out a little bit because in those mm. early episodes, I think episode four in particular, um, which is the one where Shinji runs away for the first time, I think that episode is one of the best directed in the series, and I think it is the single episode that does the best job at like just visually representing depression, like the way Shinji feels and moves through that episode and just feels worthless and like is leaving and doesn't want to be in the Eva because he doesn't feel he has a purpose and his friends kind of bullied him and he just feels so alone and then at the end is when he makes up and finally like Toji and the other guy kind of become his buddies that's that's maybe my favorite single episode of Eva if I'm like being perfectly honest because I feel like it has like the emotion the emotionality of it really comes through and we're not deep enough into the kind of plot muck for it to be messed up that way um, but I think as the further you go in the show, I think the show has, so it can visually orally represent depression very well. Um, I think it does it with Asuka very powerfully in the second half of the show, but I think intellectually it has this very weird disconnect where it kind of views depression in this bubble as it's just a state that you are in kind of not affected by your surroundings and so, like, the final two episodes, the big thesis is that Shinji, inside himself, needs to push through this barrier, like, literally break this pane of glass inside himself and realize the world is more than him and he can live and he needs to accept people into his heart, which is fine and it's a very interesting thing to say about depression. Um, and, and there's a lot of, like, I think in a vacuum, I actually find those last two episodes as a story about coming out of a depressive episode very profound and moving in the context of the 26 episodes of Neo and Genesis Evangelion, I find them fucking gibberish because the reason Shinji is in this position is because he was horribly abused as a child. He has an abusive father who is currently abusing him and he is surrounded by people who are enablers of his abuser and are helping his abuser abuse him. He should not be around these people. And like the ending being he should embrace all these people and then he'll be happy is bullshit and wrong. And, like, that's part of where I'm, like, the, the story and the theme just fundamentally do not line up in the way they want them to line up. Especially when they make the choice about halfway through the show that we're going to, like, really go into character psychology. And, but we're also going to keep this story going and not really fully illuminate it. And they just are in this perpetual conflict for me. Yeah, absolutely. So I think well, let's move a little bit forward to some of the plot stuff. And then I think we can wrap around to the ending. Yeah. Um, at the end and go deeper into some of those ideas because then yeah because i agree i think episode four is which is has the best of like the english titles because that's the hedgehog's dilemma episode um but it's yeah. also it's the shinji desserts episode it's it's you know it's it's a classic well, it's the first of like first of like five yeah. shinji desserts episodes but yeah yeah but it's the it's the classic mecha archetype you, you need you have to have the episode where the pilot runs away it just has to happen and it's almost always one of the best episodes um but then after that you get the two-parter um, that there's some of the action stuff in this two-parter is very good. And this is where I think you start to see a little bit more of the, um, like, fan service bullshit. Because um, this is where Rey uh, comes in more. She's she's a little bit in the beginning of the show, but this is, like, her sort of two-parter. Um, and you find out about her. She's has her weird fascination with Gendo. Um, and there's all, all the shit with Shinji. And, and Shinji's like, hey, I want to keep friends. And she's like, no. And then they snipe a big thing. And then Shinji's like, eh, friends? And she's like, okay. Um, <laughs> after, after, after he goes into her apartment and she walks in naked and he knocks her over and accidentally grabs her boob, right? That's, that's in these yeah. two episodes. And then he's like, oh. He like motorboats her. It's a whole weird thing. Yeah. 
and it's so it's yeah it's so let's talk about those two episodes because i think they it, it represents for me part of like the duality of eva where i think the whole sort of like military procedural aspect which is this is like which is something that shin godzilla does incredibly well i mean these are it's like the sequence is very shin godzilla-esque of them having to sort of figure out how to power up this giant sniper rifle to attack the angel and all that stuff like that sequence in the logistics of it really cool really well done great action beat um and there is some legitimately i think decent character stuff about um raid sort of warming up to shinji but then like there's something unsettling about her seeing gendo when shinji comes to go rescue her and like shinji and gendo are paired if like the show was better at storytelling it would have been able to do a lot more about that stuff if there was any vague sense of that there was some risk of shinji becoming even vaguely like gendo that would be a useful tension for the show to later actually develop on but it's a good for the first six episodes it would have been a really good setup for something they don't follow up on but so there are lots of good things there in the action part of it and the animation is great because we're the show still has a budget at this point um but but man man the fan service jonathan <laughs> so do you do you want to talk about it a little bit this again this is very fresh for you and i'm i'm like trying to vaguely remember how all those scenes are put together it so the fan service stuff basically starts in episode 2 it's not really there in episode 1 and it starts when you you get Shinji living in the apartment with this older woman um, who he doesn't know, which is creepy in its own way. And, you know, they do all the stuff with, like, Misato drinking beer and, like, hanging around in, like, clothes that, that like, allow the animators to, like, show off her boobs and shit. And they do that a bunch, and it's like, okay, this is fucking annoying. And then, yeah, you get the Ray one. And we don't really know Ray yet, but then Shinji, like, you know, collapses into her... And his head is between her boobs, and he's like holding her boobs, and then like blah blah blah, and like just constantly, just everyone's committing sex crimes against each other, and the show is just so leering towards all the female characters, and it's got its fun, silly music it plays under it, and we're not even anywhere near. At this point, it's just like a minor annoyance that's like happening in between the scenes. Like we are not anywhere near as bad as it's going to get. Like mm-hmm. in this episode seven to thirteen, are like mostly sex crimes there's almost nothing else going on in those episodes um but like five and six is is where it's like in some ways most annoying because there's actual good stuff going on over here with with the the angel ramael and the sniper action and there's just some really cool ideas going on and you know and shinji is trying to make a friend which is forward momentum in his character arc and that's kind of interesting and maybe he cares about this girl oh cool uh no no we have to do a stupid scene where he grabs her boobs okay and we have to do a stupid scene where we look up her skirt and we have to look up misato's skirt we don't even have asuka yet so it's gonna get way worse and it's just it's everywhere and it's annoying and i i at some point i was worried i was gonna like roll my eyes so far into the back of my head i would become blind which might have been better because I would have enjoyed the show more. Kidding. But you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, no, that would be the worst possible way to enjoy the show because it's, you know. That's true. That's it's true. The visual component of the editing is one of the only things that's consistently remarkable about it. Um, yeah. So, like, one thing to understand here, like, to, to, to play briefly the devil's advocate before I knock down the devil advocate's arg- argument is that <laughs> I think the show is trying to do something with very generic anime tropes of the clumsy um hetero male protagonist who like stumbles into the a female character coming out of the shower they topple over there's some like accidental groping that goes on 
It's it's a like it's a cliche as old as time in anime. Like it goes way back. Um, and it's the kind of stuff that they sort of lampshade a little bit in the last episode when you have the like high school like what if this was just a fun high school anime and 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 sex crimes happened at a high school like it's like that kind of that vision it's that's the kind of anime that have those tropes and that they're pulling from and i can kind of vaguely see something they're suggesting at of using that trope and i think for people that would argue for like eva's you know undying brilliance they would argue that this is what the show is doing is that it uses that trope with Ray, and where it turn puts the trope on its head is the fact that Ray doesn't have the 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 classic reaction to the "I fall over you and then I'm accidentally groping you" thing, which is the female character screaming, going "kya," and then slapping him across the face, and then the big doofus hetero male um, anime protagonist like it has like a vaguely you know like chibi look to him with a big red like pulsing slap mark on his face like Bulma slapping Master Roshi across the face or something like that um which we should say once Asuka gets introduced is like 90% of the show through episode 7 to 13 yes is what they do which is one of the reasons why it undercuts this if this is what they're trying to do in this scene is that then they do play that as this exact trope pretty straight multiple times the problem is and this is where we kind of have to talk a little bit about like the deconstruction is it a deconstruction or not is that there's a real fight club kind of thing that happens here of i i legitimately think that that is what they were intending to do with the scene i think that is the idea with the scene is to unsettle the viewer and kind of texturize the character of ray by showing that ray does not have the classic reaction to that scene and instead it's like what is wrong like like she seems emotionless because she has no actual response to that she doesn't treat it as anything effectively occurred um which i don't know if this is because that is like also becomes its own trope i don't know if eva i i don't know enough to know if eva if anything did that exact thing before eva i suspect probably it's happened before um but the main reason with why i think it doesn't work is because the camera doesn't feel like it's in on that reading, right? The camera feels like it is yeah. leaning complete, like even harder than most shows that play that trope, leaning into objectifying Ray, and, and in a way that also feels inconsistent with Shinji's characterization, where it doesn't feel to me like Shinji objectifying Ray, um, which some stuff can do. That's like something that I think the Monogatari series, which I talked about on our anime of the decade thing, um, that's one that that show does interesting things with viewpoint and perspective that allows me a different look at these kinds of tropes because it's clearly a distorted perspective through the character's eyes. Here it is so male gazy from the camera perspective, not from Shinji's unique perspective of him objectifying Ray, And it just feels like the camera is fucking full in on let's, let's go into this and just play it straight. And even if you try to vaguely undercut it, the fact that all elements of the scene don't feel like they're all trying to congeal into that interpretation means that it doesn't come across as, as that is what the scene is doing, even if I think that's what they were trying to go for. And so a lot of Eva has this problem that like that Fight Club had, where Fight Club, in the, the storytelling of the narrative, is supposed to be critical of all the things that are happening in Fight Club. But like 95% of people that watch that movie just come away and be like, man, Fight Club's fucking rad. Man, Tyler Durden's the coolest character in the world. You just be fucking fighting and bullshit um, and all that. And like that, that you're supposed to be taking those 
things that the, the movie is trying to be critical of and they take it like very seriously. And I think that is 100% that what happens with Eva because Eva's not sort of deft enough and is too self-conflicted about how much it should be objectifying its own female characters. Um, and then especially because it hasn't done it a lot up to this point, you could kind of give it a little bit of a generous reading for that scene. But then after this point, it has so many sequences where it does this similar kind of thing that there is no alternate interpretation. There is no them trying to put the trope on its head. Or it's not even that they're going for the trope. It's just that we have put the camera in such a way in the scene that Shinji's not even there. So there's no perspective argument. It's just like Misato and Ritsuko sitting at a bar or something. And the way the camera is placed is it's just staring down their cleavage. And that's the way that the show frames its female characters consistently throughout. And so any kind of generous reading you want to give to one specific scene falls completely apart because it's not consistent with the, the whole vision of the show. What is far more consistent with the whole vision of the show is the reason they did this scene is to objectify Ray and put her into a sexually objectified position. And if there's some character development that can come along with that, that's nice. But that's not the reason why the scene exists as a whole. And, and so the, any generous reading of it, I just think, doesn't ever hold muster for me. Um, even as someone, again, like, I have watched a lot of fucking anime. You can go listen to that, Best of Anime. Like, this is not my first rodeo. I fucking get it. And Eva, it's egregious even for a lot of that kind of stuff. And, and it's especially egregious because it pulls the stuff that the show does down so much. Because the good things in the show do not roll well with the sexual objectification. They exist what it feels like in a completely different dimension from what the show is doing with, with Ray here. Cause like, it's not just the stuff that comes after, even before you get to the scene with Ray, you have had basically every time Misato is not in uniform at nerve. She is at home with Ano's camera, like aimed down her cleavage or something, you know, like, or, or sitting in a suggestive position, or you're doing it with all the characters. And, like, it never feels like it's from a particular point of view. It never feels like Shinji, because even if Shinji... Like, there is some storytelling going on here about a pubescent boy, like, discovering his sexual appetites that's in the show. But Shinji's sexual appetites are not pervy old Master Roshi looking at Bulma, right? Which yeah. is what the camera of Eva feels like. So there's never a match of perspective between the two, you know, um... Because Shinji is generally, like, very polite and, like, is he has no intention of, like, getting in people's physical space and stuff like that. But the camera will go right up there whenever it wants. And so it just is dumb, it's silly, and then it gets so egregious. And it really, I, I think if you haven't watched Eva in a couple of years and you've forgotten this, like, go back. That first half of the show, especially after episode six, is just, like, it is the majority of the show. Is bad comedy and objectifying women, and leering scenes, and various sex crimes happening between characters, and it I, it took me a long time to get through those first 13 episodes, because they are a fucking slog for all of that stuff. And then episodically, there's also just an issue where, just if we can transition to another problem here, Sean, mm -hmm. the show really, in this first half, has no momentum. It has no overarching story. It has, there are angels coming and we have to defeat the angels. But there's no, like, breadcrumbs offered of, like, here's what we're going to do when we defeat the angels. Or here's our battle plan against all the angels. Or here's when we think they are coming. Something that would give you, like, episode to episode would kind of pull you through. Like, the first 13 episodes of Eva, particularly, I would say, again, the, like, after episode 6, the, like, 7 to 13 range, where it's really, really monster of the week heavy, 
that feels like a, like something out of a much longer anime, like not a 26-episode anime that you would imagine would be kind of focused, but like something that would just be a normal weekly run where they're just kind of making shit up every week and there's no real, like, you could you could air a lot of those episodes out of order once Asuka is introduced. Mm-hmm. Like, you, there's no connections between them. Um, and there's no general sense of movement. Like, again, to go back to Gundam, but this is true of a lot of shows too, like, Gundam is very good at its best, and especially the original Mobile Suit Gundam, of, like, there is a lot of episodic storytelling going on, but you know where they're headed. Like, when the white base gets down to Earth, there's a lot of episodic storytelling as they go across the continent, but what's their goal? It's to get across the continent and back into safe territory and then to get to Jaburo, right? Or, like, when they're going into space, we know that their ultimate goal is Abawaku or something like that. You always have an overall sense of the mission and how this contributes to it. Ava, I like really honestly never gets there, but the second half of the show has a little bit more in terms of there's some, there's things happening that have like permanent consequence and forward momentum where you couldn't just put the episodes on shuffle. Um, the first half gets to a point where just they're all kind of interchangeable and you could, you could skip a lot of it, honestly, if you just want to see the good stuff. Yeah. And, and yes, and this is for me, this is like the darkest section of Eva is seven to 14, where it just becomes a, Oh boy, I this is okay. This is what the show is doing here. Um because it is it's just so dull. Like some of the action sequences like the I mean the big famous one, the one that is like the clear inspiration for Pacific Rim is the Asuka and Shinji have to be like synced up one, which yes. has good stuff in it, but like it's not like that episode as a whole is incredible on its own, mostly because I feel like they have just no idea what to do with Asuka's character, which we'll talk about. But um, yeah, most of that episode is just Asuka being mad at Shinji and weird sex crimes happening between them and a lot of shouting. And then at the end, there's something, there's a good action sequence. Yeah, but I think for me, the main thing with the show that really hurts it here, and it's present in the first six episodes as well. Um, I mean, it's present throughout the whole show, but this is where it's at its height. Is that all the characters are totally passive. They have no ability, because their whole objective is we have to defeat the angels. But the angels are just sort of like periodically coming down. And so it's just eventually in an episode the angel's going to show up. And then you go fight the angel. And and that's what the episode is. And so the characters are completely passive. Um, which is very different from like a Mobile Suit Gundam. Where the characters are heavily motivated and, and, and active. That they have a clear objective that they're always moving to. One of the reasons why Mobile Suit Gundam is such an incredible show. Is because it knows how to pace itself so well to shift the objective so the for the first however many episodes it's we gotta survive and get to earth then you get to earth okay then it's, we need to get to odessa and participate in odessa day and then there, obviously there's like a lot of stuff in the middle there with like okay we gotta amro get amro back and he's with rambaral and all that shit um and then it's okay now we have to go um to job row and relink up with the federation forces okay now we have to go to solomon and engage in the battle at solomon now we have to go to alabaku and finish this thing and so at each stage of the show they are active they're motivated they are physically moving so there's always this sense of like literal forward progress being made because they're always moving towards their next goal and it's really satisfying television because it's always pulling you through even when most individual episodes of mobile suit gundam are pretty fucking standalone. Like, there's only a couple of them that have really heavy ties into the continuity. Most of them are stuff like, oh, here's all, like, the weird Xeon dudes putting bombs on the Gundam and stuff like that. Like, they stand alone pretty well. Um, Eva has all the characters be passive, which doesn't automatically mean it's a bad show. There are lots and lots and lots of brilliant TV shows where the main cast is fundamentally passive, 
I mean, any police procedural. I mean, basically any procedural show is going to be a, the cast are passive, some crime occurs in the X-Files, some case comes on your desk, you have to go investigate the case. Um, one of the, Any medical drama, you know, yeah. like Dr. House gets a new patient. Yeah. That's it. In, but one of the main problems is that, um, one, Eva, while they're being passive, Eva is really fucking boring. All the stuff at school sucks. There's this whole half of the sh- I mean, it's not half of the show, but at this point, it feels like about half the show is stuff that's like Misato's apartment and the school, and you have those two sets effectively, and you kind of go between them, and then eventually an angel comes down, and you have to deal with the angel. But the, the extended cast of characters that are at the school suck. The, none of them are particularly interesting. The only good one is like Toji vaguely, and that's because they do something interesting with him near the end of the show. But the school life side of the show is really bad. And there are lots of anime that have a vaguely Eva-like setup, pre-Eva, post-Eva, that are very procedural, like Power Rangers-esque, like, okay, weird, you know, it's like a pretty cure, like, magical girl shows. Like, Sailor Moon is entirely this. Like, drama's going on at school. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a Western show that does this. Drama's going on at school. Some monster shows up. Usually the monster's going to be, like, thematically related to the drama going on at school. Defeat the monster. The drama's resolved. Yay. End of episode. Move on to the next episode. But that can only operate if the school side and, like, the passive side of the show is interesting and the character dynamics are interesting and they function well in a very procedural fashion in a Mulder Scully way that's, like... It's every time I boot up an episode of the X-Files, the first five minutes before the case comes, or like the first five minutes after the cold opening, before they find out about the case, is Mulder and Scully bullshitting about something in the X-Files office in the basement. And it's great, and it's fun, and it's good, solid character banter that usually contextualizes something about the larger narrative going on with the conspiracy. And it's like, that's really solid, fun, procedural-style storytelling where the characters cannot be active on whatever main goal they have. Eva just never develops the school side of it to be interesting. And so whenever you're dealing with the school stuff, it's just boring until eventually the angel shows up. And if it's a half-decent episode, the fight with the angel will be cool. And that's like the Asuka one. Like, all the stuff before the fight with the angel is like, here's this, like, really boring, cliche, like, tropey anime comedy between two characters that aren't actually fun to watch bounce off of each other because we don't know anything about Asuka. We have no interiority for Asuka at all because she's a girl. Um, and this isn't the second half of the show where they start vaguely caring about the female characters having things inside their brains. Um, and so it's just, it's boring until you get the fight. And you go through like seven or eight fucking episodes of this and it's torturous. It's absolutely torturous. I think you're so right. Part of that is also just like, doesn't feel like there's any relationship between those two sides. Because one of the key things you noted about, let's say, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, is that the monster usually has some thematic tie to what Buffy and her friends are going through that week. And so it feels like when you're fighting the monster, you are progressing something about the character arc or the the thematic idea or the allegory or something. It's not just like shit we i mean there are bad episodes of buffy where it's like shit we need a monster right but in a good episode and this is true of the x-files as well like it should all kind of work together there's none of that in this like the the angels never represent something about what shinji is going through that week like the the closest they come is that episode with him and asuka having to fight together because they have to learn to get along 
but they don't really learn to get along because in the next episode she still hates him and they never like their characters never come to any point of reconciliation at any point in the 26 episodes so like that's the closest they get but it's still not that close another problem i have that i i want to express here with all the like quote-unquote daily life stuff is i don't know what tokyo 3 is yes I know it's. I know that it's a city. I'm not saying I don't get that it's the. It's obviously I get it that it's the big massive buildings that they fight in. But who lives there? What do they do there? Do people work? Do they? Is there more than just this one school? Is that school populated outside of that one classroom? Because I don't think we ever see anything outside of that one classroom. The only other people we ever see in the city are sometimes when Shinji is on the train. And the train that's running around looks like kind of an old, decrepit Japanese train. It even has, like, the voice. Like, when I was in Japan, that's what the lady on the train sounds like. But isn't this a new city that they just built? Why is the train like that? What do all these people do? When they're fighting with the Evas, I never see people around. Like, are they fleeing for their lives? Are they dying? When the fucking nuclear bomb goes off in, like, episode 20 and, like, blows away all of Tokyo 3... Did anyone survive? Did people get out? Shinji says all his friends left. Well, where did they go when the bomb went off? There's just like, there's no sense of like this is a community or a culture, which also leads to this sense that's really strong in the second half that kind of reads for me back on to the first half, that this is all kind of a cloistered like test community that doesn't actually, it doesn't really matter if the angels were to fucking wipe it out because the only reason that school is there is to test more people to be children for the Evas. So like, is that true of the whole community? Is this actually a settlement of people? The world building is so bad. I don't know what they're fighting for. Like, would it actually be bad if the angels just destroyed the city? Would it? I don't know. I'm Yeah, and I don't really know. I mean, I remember that, yes, like, the school is set up for to, like, you know, test and and see if there are people who can be candidates for being compatible with Evas or whatever. But it does, like, raise the question of, like, I mean, wh- really, why do any of these kids go to that fucking school? Like, like, I get that. I get why the adults are sending them to the school. Why do the kids go to class? Like, why? Like, the world is falling apart. There are giant monsters that are on a, like, a seemingly, like, weekly basis or something coming down from the sky and wreaking havoc and seem basically unstoppable other than we have the evas coming out every now and then but the evas suck like they are awful like they're so outmatched by the angels why are you going to this school like what else is there in the world what is it like america exists we know that there are other countries that are out there we see that there's this weird secret shadowy x-files-esque council of smoky dudes sometimes represented by obelisks which I think maybe the obelisks are different ones than the normal PI. I actually don't really remember that part now. Um, but there's 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 like other organizations, governments, things that exist. You have that whole like torturous monster of the week style episode. I think this I think that's actually it's seven right of where they go. It's like the most filler ass episode ever, where Shinji's barely even in it, and it's like Risco and Misato go, and there's like some other dude making a big robot. Um, like yeah. that episode's so boring. Um, and, it, and it's a lot of that kind of stuff where there's just no sense of a fundamental setting in a world for these stories to take place in. And it's, it's so bad in this section because procedural style storytelling sure is shit. You need to have a basic fundamental understanding of what the setting is. Like if you're doing this really intense, like skewed psychological drama that they get more into that in the second half, there the world building stuff doesn't feel as important 
because there the disorientation feels like it's somewhat of you being in the perspective of the characters and it's working in on emotional levels with the story. Um, but in this section, 7 to 14, there's almost none of that at all. And it's just, here's an angel popping down. We have to fight the angel. Why are we doing that? What, what are the consequences of that? How does that affect anything to do with the school, um, with your home? Um, like, really, I feel like the show would be so much better, at least in this section, if the whole school dynamic of the show was not there. And, you, and all you were, all it was was Shinji going to the headquarters and drama happening between the EVA pilots and the adults there. And it was entirely just that. And you never cut to bullshit at the school because the bullshit at the school always just makes the world feel more confusing. Feels like it's so detached from reality. It doesn't feel like there should be anybody intending a fucking high school. There aren't even good anime style high school hijinks that happen there. It's just boring. And that's where you get a lot of the, you know, like cliche um, sexual objectification that uh, Toji and the like nerdy one do over there. That are just like the generic school buddies that have no character to them. Um, and so it just makes this whole side of the show really suck. And then now we also... And it, it's also... Oh, yeah. it, it also, in the second half, theoretically, the place where you would, you know, bring the story to a resolution, which this show does not do, but, you know, theoretically, the st- school doesn't matter. Like, after episode, yep. like, 14 or 15, like, this is done. You did. They never go back to it. They never mention it again. Toji is important in, like, two episodes, and those are, two, those are like, the two best episodes of Eva. But, like... After that, like literally after the bomb goes off and the uh, Ray's Eva explodes and you have Shinji reflecting on like all my school friends left, you never see them again except in like this stuff in 25 and 26 where we're in their head. So like it didn't matter. It Nothing ever comes of it. It, it was like it really, really feels to me like the kind of thing where like they had their vision board of things they wanted in Eva, and then they started putting it together, and it didn't fit together, and at some point they abandoned it, which I think is what happened. Yeah, it, it, basically that is what happened. Um, but then we also have to talk about um, the other two major things that get introduced here, which is Kaji and Asuka. Um, let's talk about Kaji first, because Asuka is a bigger discussion. Do you hate Kaji as much as I do? Because I fucking hate Kaji. Oh, I'm actually surprised to hear you say you hate Kaji just because he didn't leave that much of an impression on me. Um, the the thing, though, is episode... Fi- so I have this weird split, like, in my episode that's a little, like... Because I said 1 to 6, kind of decent. 7, 13, which we've just been talking about, awful. 14 is the clip show, which I think is really good. And then the second half of that clip show is, like, the avant-garde short film about Ray. I love all of that. 15 is the one where I think we really get to know Kaji more. Uh, he's in there... Uh, in other places but that's where it's like me that episode has no eva stuff it's just misato like at this ball and kaji's there and then there's this scene at the end where she's describing what a horrible woman she is for having desire and he like he doesn't slap her but it feels like the end of the scene was supposed to be he slaps her around and and that's the one where i most feel like oh yeah yeah kaji's an asshole yeah i mean the main my main like the thing with kaji is one, he ruins Asuka's character. Like, Asuka get in that first half, or in 7 and 14, her, the only things that she has as a character is she wants to be a good Eva pilot, and she's in love with Kaji. And Kaji sucks. Like, one of the first things we see Kaji do is sexually molest fucking Misato in the elevator while she's desperately trying to get away from yep. him. This is like... Boy, that scene, like, not to say that that scene is ever good or appropriate, but it especially does not age well. Um, It becomes fucking just, like, 
This is not some like 1940s, like Han Solo ass, playful Hollywood, like chiseled, handsome man who's like kisses her and she like tries to resist and then she gives in. Like that trope is problematic for a number of reasons, but at least it doesn't feel like a crime is happening while you're looking at those scenes in those kinds of movies with that like classic style Hollywood romance. Here it feels like that's the characterization they're going for with Kaji. And then he's just assaulting women, you know? And yep. it's just like, and they're like physically trying to resist him and can't because he's bigger than they are. And it's like, this is horrible. Like this isn't some Shinji tripped over a thing and then accidentally grabbed a girl's boob, like bad anime trope, but it's like, you know, it at least is engineered to look like an accident. It, this is just a man willfully committing a sex crime against a woman. And you're eventually supposed to find Kaji, like, charming. And he's, like, this James Bond-esque super-secret double agent man who's, like, really trying to, like, do good things in the world. He just can't seemingly resist himself, like, you know, molesting people in elevators. And the show just has no conception of how that character actually comes across. And it so desperately wants us to like him. And the fact that Asuka is so in love with him and that, that like, really never... It's not as if there's some sort of culmination where Oscar realizes how awful Kaji is or something. Like, that just never happens. Like, Kaji eventually, I think he, does he die? Yeah, he gets killed. And he Asuka- gets shot. They martyr Kaji. Yes. I mean, Kaji is, here's the thing, Sean. I, until I was, like, going through my notes last night to prepare for this podcast, I'm going to, I'm going to come clean. I did not realize that the character they frequently refer to as Ryoji and the character they frequently refer to as Kaji were the same character. Because in the first half of the show, they mostly call him Ryoji, and he's the dude hanging around at Nerve who sexually harasses people, and he annoyed me, and I didn't realize he was supposed to be important. I wouldn't have even known... I probably didn't even realize it was the same character in every episode because he has such a generic design, and he does what all the men on Eva do, which is sexually harass and objectify women. And I just... I so tune those sequences out... That I'm not really paying attention. In episode 15, they really take a sharp turn with his character, where like they give him a little like peach fuzz. They have him have more adult conversations with Misato. They wind up in a relationship. That's also where you get him being an espionage boy. And like the characterization of him in the second half of the show is so 180 degrees different from the characterization of him in the first half. I just to level with you, I didn't realize they were the same person. Well, good. That probably made it more tolerable. Um, it did, because cause I was like, oh, this Kaji dude they just introduced in this episode, who's like, you know, he's a little he's a little chauvinistic, but, you know, he's doing all the cool spy stuff. That's kind of neat. I would not have made the... Again, I, I realized it before this actual recording, but, like, while watching, like, I would not have made the connection that they were... And, like, I'm like, oh, so Asuka's in love with this new guy, too. That's a weird character. Yeah, like, it just... Because it, it's so... Because he's such a non-entity who's only there to harass people in the first half. And then he it's a 180-degree character turn, plus generic design, plus generic voice. Blech. Yeah, so Kaji fucking sucks. Um, let's talk about Asuka in this section of the show, because they do a lot of different stuff with her later. How do you feel about her intro and all that stuff? I hate it. Yeah. I hate it so much. I hate the episode where we meet her. I hate everything with her in 7 to 13. I, I, she's grating. She is obnoxious. She's basically there just to yell at Shinji and be generic, you know, anime girl who's mad. Um, it is not deconstructivist. It's just the worst version of that trope. 
I get. I guess in the broader scheme of things, you could say there's something there in that the second half they go under the surface with her, and I do genuinely think a lot of the stuff in the second half with her is pretty good. Like when she falls into like like just how deep they portray that depression she falls into, and in the show at least never comes out of um, of of like being so competitive and having nothing else. I think there are pieces here where you could make an interesting deconstructivist version of Asuka in that she is. This like competitive high school anime like tsundere character type who like then you look under the surface and there's like a lot of actual like pain and suffering there that would not be completely novel but it would be interesting I don't think they ever connect the dots that well because the show is such so herky jerk in the second like between the first and second halves but she really annoys the shit out of me for most of this show yeah no it's just I think the problem is that I think if the idea was to do the like, oh, she just seems like this stereotype, but then we reveal psychological layers, they wait way too long to try to play that yep. reveal. And it's just like, and it ends up feeling like it's in a Kaji-esque way. It's just two different characters at some point. Um, and it's, it's if you wanted to do that, you have to give her some degree of interiority. You have to like care about her in that first half like both the creators and the viewers have to like care about that character and then you reveal more about her but you can't have multiple episodes that are like effectively i mean they're not about her because they you don't really learn anything interesting they don't actually develop her that much but she's a primary feature in a whole bunch of those episodes because she's the other eva pilot but there's just nothing there there's no characterization other than the trope and it's and it's just one of the things that makes those episodes feel really dull. And they're just such a fucking pain to get through. Yeah, because it's... The, the, the choice in the second half is that her competitiveness defines her. And she feels like without being a good EVA pilot, she has nothing. I'm not sure that's even fully seated. I feel like mm-hmm. she is competitive in like a generic... Again, like she is like the tsundere like anime type where like she clearly kind of likes Shinji but is like mean to him, you know? Yeah. But like... They work together, especially after episode nine. Like, they, they do the Eva stuff. She sometimes defeats the angel. He sometimes defeats the angel. And and eventually, like, it kind of snowballs. But especially because those episodes all feel so separate and diffuse. And, like, there's no ties between them. I don't feel like there's a build to Asuka's breaking point. Like, the breaking point happens. And everything feels a little better in the second half. Because they've gone for such a more avant-garde style. That, like, plot connections are just... They're de-emphasized to a degree. But if you try to tie it all together, it's gibberish. Yep, I agree. All right. So, um, but then there is this turn. And I feel like it's a pretty conspicuous turn the show makes. And, like, the creators of the show have talked about this from everything I've read. There's a big quote on the Wikipedia page about, like, deciding the or like not necessarily deciding but like winding up moving into a internal character psychology space where the second half of the show really is it, I, I don't even want to say it's less about plot because there is actually way more overarching plot in the second half than there is in the first half but it stops being about like the they definitely cut out the daily life stuff it stops being monster of the week stuff and it it does go very internal where the fights that they are having with the angels oftentimes get reflected and refracted against fights they are having with themselves in like an interior in, in a space of interiority and so and I really feel like episode 14 was the first one because 14, I, I've, I've kept mentioning it. It's the episode in English called Weaving a Story in 
uh, Japanese, it's Seal Seat of the Soul. Those are both good titles. I I think it's like all these episodes have like two good titles, which is kind of a cool feature of them. But anyway, um, and that's the one. The first half is the clip show, but the way it's edited to like just take the absolute best moments of each action sequence and put them together with all the like. This this is also where Ano starts playing with text in really heavy ways. Mm-hmm. Um, that very much presage uh, Shin Gojira um, <laughs> in, in entertaining ways where I'm like, oh, right, even if I read Japanese fluently, I wouldn't get fucking any of this um, because it's so fast, you know? Um, and it's, it's, so the way it's cut together with the text and the action, like it's actually a very attention-grabbing clip show. And then the second half is this very avant-garde examination of Ray that like goes on full on. And when I say avant-garde, I mean it in like the full sense of the term. Like it feels like it's coming out of a tradition. Like there are, there are shades definitely of like uh, Stan Brackage, who's an American avant-garde filmmaker in terms of how it does these like really, not just fast cuts, but I mean you have a ton of stuff within one, like stuff like frame by frame going by with like text and like painted text on screen and all of that. And some of the call and response stuff with like text to image um, it's very interesting. And from that point on, the show sort of it uses that style much more fluidly throughout. And it goes much more inside the characters' heads. As you say, it finally realizes, oh shit, women are people too. And tries to give the women some characterization to varying results. Uh, and then you kind of build to episodes 18 and 19, which are, I think... From what I had read, I think most people tend to agree are the are the best of the show, which is the one where you have the fourth children go out and uh, and you realize it's Toji, and then in the in the one after that, um, uh, Shinji has to you know kill his best friend, kind of that everyone lives in Eva, but that's like a real peak where it's all kind of everything's firing on all cylinders. I feel like, yeah, no, definitely eighteen and nineteen are my favorite episodes as well. Um, it is. I mean, because it is the thing that, like, the show just sort of realizes, I think, that's like, well, we kind of have no idea what the fuck we're doing with, like, the main plot and the angels and the world building and any of that. And so it just kind of dismisses a lot of that stuff. Um, And so once it does that, it can just focus on the things that are interesting about Eva, which is the sort of more psychological um, character exploration stuff, the really interesting direction and sort of visual storytelling and diving way deeper into that. Um, and, and then yes, the Toji, it's the, like, one good usage of one of those supporting characters is Toji, it's because, is one of the other children's, and he gets into the, his Eva, and then Shinji has to fight him, and, and then, you know, yes, as you say, everybody lives, that is one where, like, Toji was supposed to die, and they just basically didn't let him kill him, they are like, uh, it's maybe going too far, which is weird, because I guess standards changed, but Think of all the fucking you never people see that him died. again. Yeah, I mean, you think of all the people that die in Gundam. It's like really, like you couldn't kill Toji. Like Victory Gundam cared all, killed off a killer character like every other fucking episode. Why would you not be able to kill Toji? But I mean, they wanted to, they just couldn't, I guess. Um, but yeah, because I mean, it's why they never really see him again. Um, I think it's like they imply because you see him one time in the hospital and they imply that like his legs got destroyed or something. Like he he lost limbs. I think was the implication, but they can never actually show anything. So the, and then then after that, he's just gone. Um, yeah, but yeah, because because eighteen, so eighteen and nineteen are ambivalence and introjection, and eighteen is the one where there's the fight with an angel and Shinji doesn't. Well, no, it's not it's that the it's that Unit Three goes berserk and like becomes. This is where you fully start to learn that the Evas are yeah. like made out of angels. 
And so it becomes an angel. Shinji has to fight it. He's that's where you get. I mean, probably the most like iconic imagery of the show is Unit Three walking against like with the sun in the background, and he's like completely in silhouette coming towards us. Like I had seen that image in a hundred places before watching this episode, and I'm like, that's where that's from because <laughs> it's so and deservedly iconic. It's amazing, um, and the battle there is incredible, and it's where. Gendo just goes full evil villain and and Shinji's like I'm not gonna like why like at least tell me who it is I'm not gonna kill a rando and Gendo puts in the the dummy plug and takes over and has the Eva um kill uh, well seemingly kill the person in there and at the very end Shinji learns that it was Toji because that's also like there's some really good writing in this episode where People keep almost telling Shinji it's Toji, and for like different reasons, like it doesn't feel too convoluted. It feels like it's very well done. He keeps not finding out until the worst possible minute, and then nineteen is where Shinji Shinji quits for the second or third time. I forget how many times it's been, and he runs away. And then you have a really bad angel come in, and it kind of defeats everyone. Uh, Shinji comes back, and you get another just virtuoso action sequence where Unit One like goes berserk and crazy shit happens and then apparently Shinji becomes primordial goo which is a weird idea but yes those two pretty crazy yes right yeah because that's where the Eva like eats the angel right and, and it absorbs yep. the S2 engine or whatever fucking techno bullshit they like throw out when people are like yelling things when those scenes are happening you're like I guess this dialogue probably means something I don't know this is just cool this thing is eating this other thing that's sick um it's it's an amazing. I mean the the animation there and like the the way like because because pieces of the Eva's shell which we thought were armor are like coming off and you're seeing like the angel underneath. Like these are the two episodes that are most for me. Like okay, this is why people love Eva because I've never seen anything quite like these two episodes. Yes, this is also where it gets a little bit like. This is where you see a little bit of Space Runaway Edeon get in there, um, which is, it feels like if if Tomio could have gotten away with it, Edeon would have been like this, where it's like actually this big like bio monster underneath, because there's 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 a clear couple of callbacks to things, a, a, like really good episode from Edeon in how they do this, in the way that the, like kind of coming to understand just how sort of alive the what you thought was this machine is. Um, it's really well done, um, and it's well done here. And then, yeah, and then it climaxes with um, Shinji. He has like like two billion percent synchronization with the evil, or whatever, and he just gets absorbed. Into, it's four hundred, yeah, but yes, whatever it is, yeah, and he just gets absorbed into the uh, the goop. And and then Eva's like, I kind of feel like Eva should have just ended there. Like, I feel like if they just stop there, just be like, that'd be I'd, be I'd be good. I'd be good with that because there is good stuff after this. But this is also the point where I feel like once they get Shinji back from the goop, they just don't know what to do with him anymore. And they're like, well, I guess we can do some Li- Asuka stuff, I guess. I don't know. Literally, Shinji... So so episode 19 is where he becomes goop. Episode 20 is where he is goop. And I actually like 20 a lot. Um, 20 is all like inside Shinji's head. It very much presages episodes 25 yeah. and 26. Um, and at the end, like, he comes back from the beyond. He, his body is reformed. But after he's reformed, 21 is the flashback episode um, where they fill in the entire plot. 22 is all Asuka. And 23 is is mostly Rey. 
Um, 24 is, and then 24 is where you meet, uh, Kawaru. 24 is the one where it's an entire season of anime in 20 minutes. So there's at least three episodes after that where Shinji does not really factor into the stories. After he becomes Goo, you really don't catch up with him again until episode 24, um, and, and his relationship with Kawaru. So, like, that's, I agree. There's kind of like a aimlessness, because after that, I mean, that, that flashback episode is, it's actually, it's pretty good in a lot of ways, but it's also, like, it's so clearly, oh shit, we're almost at the end of the episode order. We have done no world building. We've explained none of this. You don't know who any of these people are. Let's fill in what we can. They fill in some things. It sets up, but the other thing about episode 21 is that everything it's filling in is it is setting up stuff for the climax that was never done. Yeah. Like the climax, maybe it's in End of Eva. I haven't seen it. In the show, none of that ever pays off. You never find out what the human instrumentality project is. You never know what Seal is up to. You never know what the promised day is. You never know why they want to do the third impact. That's all set up for something that never happens. It would be like if Lost ended before they did the finale, but after they did the episode that explained who Jacob and the Man in Black are. And you'd be like, well, the episode where you find out who Jacob and the Man in Black are is pretty interesting, but like, it's completely there to set up stuff for the finale. And if the finale never happened, that'd be very confusing. Yeah, and so it is this thing of where, like, at the, like these episodes are some of the best episodes. They're definitely way, way more interesting than, like, the procedural doldrums of, like, 7 and 13 and stuff. But it is also just, like, a show, like, sort of desperately scrambling to become something. Because it does, I think it legitimately um, does, like, reach its climactic point. It is, it's episode 20 when he comes out. Yeah, so in episode 20 when he's revived is actually probably where... It should have stopped because I, again, it's been a while since I watched season remembering that. Yes, because that's, yes, that's where he, he that, they're like, there's a bunch of UE stuff in there, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's. This... Yeah, because his mother, like the voice of his mother kind of brings him out. And yeah. yeah, I agree. It kind of feels like that would be the ending in a weird way. Because it's not as if the actual ending we got pays off any more than that. And so if you just stop there. And they didn't try to sort of continue to introduce weird world-building concepts that don't really mean anything, aren't actually significant in any... I mean, I should say they aren't significant in any way. They're trying to make them significant. Me as a viewer feels like they ultimately become insignificant, even when, like, End of Eva does explain a lot more of that stuff that they introduce in the back, uh, the flashback episode. But it's... But it, but it doesn't matter. Like, I, it's... The problem with the show isn't that... They don't tell you what the human instrumentality project is. The problem with the show is that if they wanted to do that, that needed to be something that was set up like in the first half of the show, not something that they try to jam in near the end. And so it's never something that feels like it's coherent with the rest of what Neon Genesis Evangelion is necessarily doing. And so it's like even if you know the answers, even if you get more closure on Adam or the angels or any of that stuff it doesn't actually solve any of the problems with the storytelling along the way. And so it's just like, here's just a bunch of like weird stuff. We're just going to say some words from the Bible and we'll, you know, pretend that they mean stuff. We'll kind of tell you a little bit about it in this TV show. And then we'll make a movie that'll tell you a little bit more about it, but it's still not going to be satisfying. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about a couple of episodes in here. Episode um, 22 uh, staying human slash don't be um, you can guess which one was the English title it's not the one you think it is um, that's the one where Oscar just goes into a horrible clinical depression 
And I, I find that fairly compelling in terms of how it's directed and put together in that it is this like collapse over the course of the episode of like self-identity and just shedding that and like the extreme lengths they push it to like it gets it's very extreme and like the last time you see her in episode 24 before you jump into the ending I mean she is like she's basically comatose and and in a hospital bed and like her ending is incredibly bleak but I think the way that it is by far the most compelling I ever find that character all the stuff about how much she hates herself and everyone else and they do some like avant-garde sequences where like they do this repetition of her repeating this stuff about how much she hates everything um that's there's something very true about that there's something about how it feeds into self-loathing when that self-identity collapses that i think is well done do i think it could have been like set up and then paid off better if there were any payoff yes but i find it as a standalone episode fairly compelling yeah, I agree that it's like, it's good on its own. It doesn't really signify much for Eva in general, because again, this is information that you're learning four episodes away from the end, um, where you're like finally actually diving into Asuka's character. It just like feels a little bit too little too late. But like, as you said near the beginning of the podcast, like Eva is good at, at this point, delivering solid individual episodes that have lots of solid individual moments in them. Um, and this is one of those where, like, the direction and editing and the visual quality, um, it's actually very effective at trying to dive into the character's psychology. It just feels like, man, I sure wish that they had figured this stuff out way earlier, because if you had a whole show that was intentionally created around this kind of storytelling, it sure would be very good. Too bad it comes in at, like, episode, like, in this last sort of set of episodes. Yeah. And then 24 is fascinating because 24 is basically an entire arc of anime in 20 minutes and it's too rushed but at the same time i actually think it's one of the best individual episodes like kawaru comes in he is the fifth children he is i mean it's actually kind of funny it's reminds me really heavily of the ryoji arc in persona 3 it feels mm-hmm. like the ryoji arc but done in 20 minutes where like he befriends shinji He's the first person to, like, be nice to Shinji in a while. Shinji likes that. And then Shinji finds out he's uh, an angel and at the end has to kill him. And it this honestly was, outside of maybe 1819, my favorite, like, the episode, like, I most just full-on enjoyed because there actually feels like there's plot movement where, like, he's this guy who's been sent, but he's actually an angel and he's going down there and he's going to spark the, the third impact. And so... Uh, Shinji has to go after him in the Eva and it's really sad because he doesn't want to have to kill this guy and they wind up having this battle where uh, Kawaru can just control the Evas with his mind and like it's it's all the stuff down there and like the layers under Nerve is such an interesting like designed piece of animation and it's I really actually like all of that stuff and it feels like a really effective climax of course after that point it, it like clearly sets up a cliffhanger for more to come that never does because 25 and 26 are so detached from the rest of the show but like it's very effective and that episode the entire like second half is scored to Beethoven's fifth and there are two sequences there's there's this one in 24 that's all Beethoven's fifth classical music and there's one in an earlier episode and I forget which one it is exactly that's scored to the hallelujah chorus 
those are two of my favorite like virtuoso directorial sequences in Evangelion where it's all done to these classical or um, spiritual like hymn style pieces. And those are just, again, on the level of like aesthetic put together, uh, fucking jaw dropping incredible. I really love that stuff. Yeah, I agree that it's very aesthetically compelling. It is just like, it's very funny when you look at Eva that Kaoru comes in in, he is introduced and killed off in the same episode because that character, yes. like from what I understand, he's a pretty major character in the rebuild movies. Um, and he is yeah. also so so. One thing to know is there was a manga that um, actually started publishing a little bit before Eva um, came out as a TV show, and then like would continue to be published over the course of Eva airing, and then after Eva aired, that's like nominally telling the same story. Um, but it does make a lot of changes. And one of the main ones is that Kaudu, from what I understand, is a much bigger character there. Because he had, like, cast a big shadow on the Eva franchise. And when you actually watch the episode he's in, it's like, I mean, it's a cool character. I get why he's, um, like, so popular. And, like, it is a good concept for a character. And his relationship with Shinji is interesting. But I just so wish it wasn't one episode. Because, it, because it's like, the amount of impact that Kaudu's character that you were to understand that Kaudu's character has on Shinji as a person feels so out of scale with what you've actually seen them together like they've they've spent half a day together or whatever and there's there's some interesting like sexual tension between them um and stuff like that but there's just not enough meat on the bones. Like it's it's the outline of the story for the Kaudu character. It's but it doesn't feel like you actually get the story that you need to for me at least to have any sort of emotional investment. So it's like I appreciate a lot of the visual elements of that episode, um, and I appreciate a lot of the ideas behind it. But the actual experience of it is so sort of fleeting and thin. And again, it's just it's coupled like the same thing with like the other episodes in this section. There's so much good stuff conceptually going on here and visually going on here but it's so too much too late in terms of the actual storytelling to for me to be like that invested with it yeah i mean to me like the 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 like stuff in episodes 18 and 19 that we really liked that really probably should be like the halfway point of the show mm -hmm. or a little bit before the halfway point and then give the second half of the show over to developing all of this and have Kaworu around for seven or eight episodes and like really give that some some life but it's you know it's they're throwing stuff at the walls to see what will stick at this point and like oh shit we have three episodes left let's do all the plot we can in this one and then the super fascinating thing is, like, I, I do love in this stretch how the next episode previews just completely fall apart. Like, some of them are just just black screens with narration. Some of them, they're showing the storyboards for episode 25. Uh, at the end of 25, going into 26, they just show a piece of the script. Um, and then for the end of episode 24, advertising 25, they advertise a different episode. They just, like, it's, it's an episode called Air. The episode Air never aired. Um... It's all storyboarded material that they're showing, but none of that is in episode 25. Like, like clearly, 24 was building into something else. That ep something else never got made. And then 25 is just something completely different. So, like, it's it's so balls-to-the-wall crazy in terms of putting it together. It just, none of it holds together. Yeah, and it's... it's... It's frustrating. This is also... Because we did we skipped over the episode where you find out that Ray's a clone, right? 
Doesn't that happen? Oh here? yeah, we did. Yeah, raise a clone. Yep. Raise a clone. Okay, can I do a rant now? Yes. Okay. I I hinted at this earlier, but since we've mentioned that Ray is a clone, I really need to say it now, Sean. Uh huh. Why does Shinji need to be in the Eva? Why? Why does Shinji need to be in the Eva? Why does Asuka need to be in the Eva? Why do they need to have a whole school program to find more kids to throw in more Evas when Gendo has invented this, like, they never really in the show make clear what Rei is, but, like, she's some kind of, like, AI he has put together, and, like, she gets put in a succession of bodies that keep dying, and she is also the source of the dummy plugs, and throughout the show, by far, the best and most effective Eva pilot is Rei. Like, there's no doubt about that. Like, Shinji fucks shit up. Asuka is honestly pretty bad at her job. Rei, pretty much any time they put her out there, gets the job done. She's very good at it. When they need, like, Shinji won't kill the fourth children, they just, she puts in the dummy plug, which is just Rei, and it gets the job done. Why do, why? Why do they need this? They have the fucking Rei clone. They have all they will ever need. They don't need to put kids in the Eva. I know that, like, not everyone at Nerve is, like, fully cued in on all of this, but Gendo knows that, so to my knowledge, he's just doing this shit with Shinji to fuck with his son, and it just, that's the thing, is, like, by the end of the show, it, it, it's not just that I never find out why Shinji needs to be in the Eva, I find out a very direct reason why he shouldn't be, and it pisses me off, and then, of course, because the show has no narrative resolution, it never comes back and is talked about, so, it's fucking stupid. Yeah, there is a, like more of a reason of why Shinji is in the Eva that I, I feel like the, the TV show hints at and End of Eva makes more explicit, so we'll talk about that there. But you are right that like even when there is a reason why Shinji is suited to be an Eva pilot, it doesn't matter because you have an infinite number of rays that you can make that can all just be And Eva Ray's pilot. better at it. Yes. Like, she works. It's good. Like, it works. Like, they, they, because Ray dies, and this is the third, yeah, because that episode is Ray 3. So you had the first Ray who is killed, that's the one that's killed by Ritsuko's mom, right? And then yeah. you have Ray 2, which is the Ray that we know for most of it, and now we have a third Ray. And, and they all seem good. Like, they're all good. You can make more Rays, more Eva pilots. It is, it is a weird, like, it's one of those problems with like them trying to be so cryptic about all this bullshit. It's just like, why can't you do this? And maybe there are reasons. And I have some ideas that we'll talk about. We'll revisit this with end of Eva, but I don't feel like the show actually gives a good, or that movie ever gives a good explanation for why, why, why you have to actually be in this scenario. You know, they're, they're not as pushed against their back as they seem to be because Genji is or Gendo is always holding back information. He's always got another card up his sleeve. He's he, like Gendo seems to be this character that in so many ways is sort of unstoppable or infallible strangely. And yet the show is constantly telling us how much like these characters are so desperate. We're so with our backs against the walls against this thing and you never just get a good, satisfying resolution to any of those dynamics. Um, yeah, and it's it's just where I don't know. It's frustrating. I wish I wish this show. I wish this show could like ground some of its setting more firmly, so that way you don't have to constantly be just asking questions of like, so why does this work this way? 
Why would this be the best way for this thing to work? Why does this have to be so complicated? And it just feels like it's because they didn't come up with any of these ideas until you got to the second half of the show. Yeah, and I, you know, you, you guys know this about me if you've listened to this long enough. I don't like to be the plot hole person. I don't like to be pushing out, like, pointing out little inconsistencies here and there, like I'm doing a fucking Cinema Sins video. I hate that. But there is a level where I think you have to have a world with internal logic so that I can, like, understand character motivations and I can know where people are coming from. And, like, it's it's when it gets to that level where I I either don't buy the themes of the show because of the narrative undercutting them through gaps or I don't understand or buy character motivations for the same reason. And Eva suffers from both of those problems. That's when I start caring about what you might call a plot hole or just a, a lack of narrative consistency. Yeah, no, it's, it's frustrating. So, you know, raise a clone. And One... it's so funny that they introduced that in episode 23, because it's just like, well, you don't have any time to, like, ever in the show deal with this revelation. Because in my memory, that information was revealed way earlier. And it is, I think it's vaguely hinted at in that second half of episode 14. Um, but, yeah, the fact that, man, they don't tell you that until the very end is fucking crazy. Also, so that is also, so at the end of that episode is where Ritsuko destroys all of the clones. Or she destroys all of the bodies because she learned that Gendo had another lover. So both her mom and her went crazy and killed a bunch of rays because they found out this awful dude they were fucking was like into someone else. Again, this show's opinion of women is very, very, very low. Yeah, the the just abject character assassination of Ritsuko is one of the most frustrating things about the show because she seems cool like she's this cool scientist lady she's really smart she's coming up with all these like sort of grounded logical solutions she's paired with misato really well because misato is like very kind of off the cuff emotional ritsuko is very cold and logical and then they just have to do this whole bullshit spurned lover like woman scorned thing with her and it's made doubly worse by the fact that the man she has this underquiet love for is the same man that her mom did literally the exact same thing for. And and that character is Gendo, who, as we have already covered pretty thoroughly, fucking sucks. And so it's just, it makes Ritsuko feel like the biggest idiot in the entire world. That, that she's just can't contain her, her unseemly womanly lusts for this gross older dude who her mother was also in love with. It's just the fucking worst shit. And it and it ends up like you know, she is one of the few female characters that it felt that like I was like, okay, she seems okay. Like we're not doing too much gross stuff with her. And then she ends up, I feel like, having the worst it's the worst perspective on women possible. It is the most like they they can't control their emotions. These women just like can't control their incredible sexual feelings for people, and because of that, they just go hysterical. Um, it's it is one hundred percent just that trope, and it sucks so much. Yeah. Again, deconstructivism means you take a trope and you do something with it. Not you take this trope from like nineteen thirty five and just do it. And then move on. And that's basically the last thing Ritsuko does in the show. Yeah. And it, it is like... It's where it feels like sometimes when people say they're like deconstructing these things. 
what they actually mean is that Eva is a mecha show that f- that is tonally very dark. And because it's tonally very yes. dark, therefore it is deconstructing things. It's like, well, no. It's just it's just most of the major plot beats of Mobile Suit Gundam with a bunch of like kind of gross objectifying tropes with like the female characters thrown in and then it's played to a like more enhanced level of sort of like dark psychological drama in the second half but that's not a deconstruction like and and when you we actually look at the shows like mobile suit gundam is i feel like a much more adult mature and many ways dark show because it is like grappling with like i think it has a much more sort of clear perspective on things whereas like eva feels like it's so distorted by its own bullshit it it feels very adolescent like it 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 feels like it can't escape its own sort of obsessions with things and its own fixation on these things and doesn't have a broader perspective on the world and on humanity um which is one of the things that it feels like is a con is a potential consequence and you see this in a lot of anime today that can be just like really annoying of it's this like pseudo inbred quality of Eva feels like it is a thing made by the worldview shaped by someone who consumed this media um and is perpetuating that rather than something like Gundam which feels like a much more authentic piece of storytelling produced by someone not because they were influenced by other stories told in this same medium in this same genre but by a whole larger host of influences and Eva just feels like someone who watched a lot of anime and then read a bunch of Freud and then decided to make a thing out of it yeah if I'm being perfectly honest and and I should probably just be frank two hours into the podcast I think at its best Eva sounds like it was written by a pretty smart high schooler but it never rises above feeling to me like it was written by a high schooler of like it has that attitude towards women it has that attitude towards attitude frankly towards like psychology in general it feels like it read some introductory psych textbooks it read some freud it it read some like christian mysticism stuff and it put it all in the blender and it has no real sense of like how to actually tie a story together because that takes time and experience to grow and it can never really view women as like people because it feels like it was written by a teenage boy and i think even a lot of the stuff in episodes 25 and 26 which we're about to talk about like all of its like psychoanalyzing of the characters just winds up feeling pretty shallow and gibberishy to me if you try to break down what any of it is saying. If you put it next to something like Mobile Suit Gundam, which feels like it was written by an adult who is one of the most talented writers in the history of his medium, who is actively like coming up with stuff and thinking so thoroughly through every detail of this world and the thematic implications and like, you know, like really genuinely questioning in episodes like coming home of Gundam, like what it means to become a killer as a child and like what that impact has on the psychology of a person. And you compare, cause they basically come to the same thematic point at the end of both shows. Mm-hmm. And Gundam feels like it's actually done that with real people and not signifiers inside of someone's very adolescent interior mind. Um, that's, that's what it feels like to me. I, I think Eva, feels like something that and I I want to be careful here and not insult like any of our listeners because I don't think you're stupid if you like Eva I'm not trying to say that um but it does feel kind of like the effect where you get sometimes with college students who will be like you know 
back in the day, you would get this a lot of like, uh, what was the Jake Gyllenhaal? Donnie Darko. You'll be like, Donnie Darko yeah. is the most brilliant movie I've ever seen. Or, you know, Pulp Fiction is the most brilliant movie I've ever seen. Or, we already mentioned it, Sean, Fight Club. That's, that's a brilliant movie. Because it's the first movie they ever saw that aspired to any kind of like thematic resonance. And I don't think any of those movies, with the possible exception of Pulp Fiction, which is very good, really have any thematic resonance or interesting or original ideas. And in all cases, those are all pastiches. Um... Eva kind of feels like that to me And it kind of was to the American anime market Because a lot of the things it was playing on Had not come to the American anime market when it came out So like it was like kind of ground zero for some of these things But it does kind of feel like I look at it and I'm like As a, I don't know, as a 27 year old adult I look at it and I'm like, okay kid, that's cute Um, Try again That's kind of what it feels like to me And, And I feel like it would really strike you most if you were like a 15 year old boy who had not seen a lot of anime or had not read a lot of Freud and psychology and kind of had not seen like avant-garde film and had not seen kind of the wild world, wider world of these things, it would congeal in a way that's like, Oh, this is fascinating for me. It just kind of looks like a mess that I would, you know, if I'm grading it as a paper would give like a C to, and you know, maybe a B for, you know, audacity. I don't know. Does that make sense, Sean? Yeah, because I kind of agree. Like, honestly, the thing it reminds me of a lot is it reminds me of when um, I read the graphic novel Arkham Asylum, A Serious House on Serious Earth, which is Grant Morrison graphic novel. Um, It's like one of the inspirations for the Arkham Asylum video game and had been hyped up to me a huge amount. And I read it probably like junior year of my undergrad studies. And if I had read it like a year before I went into college, I probably would have loved it. But since I had read it in the middle of me, like, reading a bunch of, like, literary critical theory that's, like, psychoanalytic theory and feminist theory and Marxist theory and so on and so forth. And then I just realized, like, reading through it, that's like, oh, all this is is Grant Morrison just, like, took a character and said, you're going to be, like, the Lacanian mirror stage represented as a character. And it just felt like this very thing of, like, oh, if I've read the things that you read... I don't get anything out of this because all you're just doing is kind of like reproducing some of these tropes and concepts from literary theory and you're just turning them into characters. But it's not interesting. Like there's no larger story being told. It's just you're just kind of like repeating Freud and a lot of Eva when it gets into the psychological stuff. I like I find it interesting because it's more interesting than what came before it and because it's more like it's put together and presented in a way that's much more exciting because it's much more visually coherence, maybe not the right word to use for it, but it's more visually engaging. Um, it uses like interesting cuts and stuff like that. Um, and so it's like more fun to watch. But when you actually think about the psychology, it feels like it coming from someone who read Freud and took him seriously, which is like you, it's you, you, you have to take a love Freud with a grain of salt. Like, and especially as someone who has a background in literary theory, where psychoanalytics and like psychoanalysis in general has been like out of vogue in literary criticism for a pretty long time. Like most literary critical thought is way more we're in a big Marxist phase right now. And so there's like just a certain amount of like, we just kind of don't do this. And it's like there, there are interesting things about Freud, but you have to filter Freud a lot. To get something I think that's like particularly usable from it. And if you're just reproducing edible complex type bullshit, which is a lot of what we get with Shinji and his relationship with his mom, his relationship with Gendo, his relationship with women in general, 
Like, if you get unfiltered Freud, the one of the main things that's going to suffer hugely is your psychological understanding of all of your female characters because all of Freud's psychoanalytic stuff is aimed at male, the male consciousness and the male mind and its treatment of women sucks. It's understanding of women fucking sucks. It's not even to say that it's understanding of men is like accurate or good. And it's not like to be taken as this is the actual truth of how human psychology works. There are interesting ideas in there. And Eva just takes it and plays it so fucking straight. And you get a lot of that stuff in the last two episodes where it becomes completely abstracted. And so all the characters just become vague representations of sort of pseudo-Freudian psychological concepts. And you just get that kind of bullshit repeated at you a lot. And I'm like, I'm good. I played Metal Gear Solid 2. I don't need this. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's it's not just that Freud's representation of women sucks. It's he doesn't have a representation yeah. of women. There is no... There is no consideration of the female consciousness in his model. Like, women are specifically excluded from that model. And I'm coming from a discipline in film studies, Sean, where we're still all about psychoanalytic theory. And it drives me fucking crazy because it's stupid. But, like, I can see a lot of film studies people going ape for Eva because they can draw all the, you know, fucking Freud references. But, like, I completely agree with you on this. And, you know, maybe time we move past it. You guys over in literature have have, uh, have figured that the fuck out. We haven't. Um, but yeah, it's... Maybe we're getting a little off track because we actually haven't talked about the final two episodes, uh, which are bizarre. Yeah, like, I have to admit that, like, my main memory of these last two episodes is a lot of characters talking at the camera, um, the, the high school comedy thing they do in episode 26... And then the part that I like that I think is like in, in a better TV show that built to this point really well. I really like the moment of all the characters standing around clapping and congratulating Shinji. I think that is a really good conclusion for him if it was built too properly. Um, but other than that, like it always kind of amazes me that this is two episodes because in my memory it's just one. Because I feel like there's not actually enough stuff for there to be two episodes of content covered here. Because it's like, because what actually happens is pretty straightforward. It just takes a lot of like psychological representations of Shinji's perspective on like Misato and Toji and all these people just like saying stuff. And you're like, okay, can you just get to a part where like you're actually saying something more meaningful? And it's just it's like the show is just sort of like spinning its wheels until it gets to everyone standing around and congratulating Shinji for opening his heart for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, let me describe really quickly what 25 and 26 are, just to kind of recap them, because they are one big episode. I mean, 25 just kind of cuts off, and then 26 just picks up, and it's you could edit them together very, very easily, because um, they they're basically one 45-minute episode. And the plot is completely abandoned. There is, there is like, saying what happens in the last two episodes, nothing happens. It's, it's completely an internal representation, like... I know people will tell me, I've already had people in my Twitter mentions tell me like, oh, this is the human instrumentality project happening and Shinji, but, but, but yes, I understand you can, if you read it on Wikipedia or watch the end of Eva, it probably explains that. I'm talking about the actual episodes 25 and 26 in the context of the show. And you literally never see anything in the actual digesis of the story in these episodes because you're just in their minds as psychology stuff is happening because these episodes are, pretty much photo montages um a lot of it is still images and people talking to you once in a while you get a slight amount of animation where you will have a character usually not against a background because they probably could not afford to draw a background 
and they will talk at you. Uh, it's a lot of recycled animation of them talking at you. Um, but definitely a lot, big swaths of it really are just photo montage. Uh, and in a very like Chris Marker kind of way, if you've seen his films like Sans Soleil or um, Le Jeté and things like that. Um, he was a French um, video essayist. It's very much like that. And then the second half of 26, which is, I agree, my favorite stretch of this. Because the second half of 26 is where you... For a while, I was wondering if the ending was like, this was all a dream. Because the way it's played is like Shinji wakes up and it's just a normal version of Tokyo. He is in school. They recontextualize like every major character in the show to be somewhere in or around the school. So like Misato is their teacher and Gendo and his mom are both at home and Gendo doesn't actually seem evil. So it's again just a very like Oedipal thing of like he saw Gendo that way because there was his dad, you know competition because of the edible complex and that sequence is like the most fully animated although then there's also a point where it just starts being drawn with crayon um and that's kind of entertaining as well uh and then like there's a third level beyond that where shinji has this realization of oh there are other shinjis who don't have to pilot evas that means and then he has that he goes he basically has the breakthrough of depression which is that there, I can't just live the world as me in my own head. I have to accept other people into my life, and that's the end. And then everyone claps for him. But again, we never like we never go back out of the psychological realm. We never find out what happened after um, he killed Kaworu or what was going on with Gendo or any of that. It is a complete departure from the story of the show, and it is this um, emotional like discussion of all the characters, mostly on this this theme that we can debate was actually there or not of, of accepting people into one's lives. And basically the 25 and 26 are, I would call them a video essay on the notion of um, what it means to live a solitary life versus a communal life. Um, but it has pretty tenuous ties to the rest of Eva, I would argue. Yeah. It's like, for me, it is the thing because we hit on it earlier that those ideas because those i mean those ideas are built into shinji's character like it's clearly there throughout the show um like not to say that it's like built up to sort of consistently or it's a consistent perspective or interest the show has but you know it's especially there like very early on and then it kind of loses track of it in the middle and then especially then shinji kind of goes away for a little bit and then comes back here um but like the main issue is it kind of feels like that character revelation for shinji should be the character revelation he has halfway through a show, not the very, very end of it, especially because that's only part of what he needs to learn. The other part he needs to learn is you open yourself up to people and then you come to recognize the people in your life who you shouldn't open up to, the people in your life who are abusing you or using you and manipulating you, which are most of the people that Shinji knows, especially Gendo. Gendo's the obvious big one, but yes. like Misato is guilty of that. Ritsuko is guilty of that. Um, Asuka is, like, physically abusive to him. Rei is the only one who's not because Rei's, like, a weird um, and she's a clone girl. But everybody else is, like, either physically and especially psychologically abusive and excessively manipulative of Shinji. Very few people are actually trying to help him or, like, you know, be... Like, like I think Misato wants to help him. I don't think Misato enjoys manipulating Shinji. But she sure does a lot and very directly and deliberately. And we know she does. She's aware of the fact that she does and she does it anyways. And it's like, 
it's it sucks to have Shinji's endpoint be, and I'm just gonna say like Indiviva does not change this. Like like Indiviva has a different ending for his character, but it's not one where he like comes to learn that people are abusive, um, to him. So it's like I feel like Shinji's end point here is not actually an end point. It's one of the things that's frustrating about Eva having this very just sort of like bubbled perspective on on Shinji, on dis- depression, on the world is that it doesn't allow itself to, like, break outside of that. And once it sort of sees a, like, glimmer of light come outside of, like, oh, Shinji's not sad anymore, then the show has to be over. Because it doesn't know what to do once his emotional experience becomes more textured, which, again, feels to me like a really inauthentic, like, relationship towards depression because it isn't just you being sad all the time. That's just one part of it. And Shinji sort of getting this little light, having people congratulate him, and then cut, it's over. Like, that would be fine if this was a movie, maybe, and it was, like, such a self-contained thing. But this is the conclusion of a big TV show, and you were expecting an extended, expanded story that explores the life of this character, and you just kind of didn't get that, because it sort of just screwed around for so much of the show that... You know, if there was, if this was the like Gundam, like 52 episode version of Evangelion, like there, I can see so much of like, there would be such a great story to tell past this point. Um, but it just sort of stops. And then End of Eva is not an expansion or it's not pushing further past this ending. It's effectively like a retelling of this ending that grounds it in reality in different ways and tells you more about how this psychological experience happens for Shinji. But it's not a we're t- giving you more of the story that goes past this point. This is where Shinji's story ends and it's not satisfying. Yeah. So, so I want to be really clear because you, you set up the boundaries of this podcast, yeah. Sean, you told me watch one through 26. Don't watch end of Eva yet. We'll do that on a future one. So I would remain unspoiled. Right. Yeah. So I just have to be very clear on like my reaction to this ending. It's, it's mostly amusement, but like, the show ends at 24. Like, 24 is the end of any plot stuff. 25 and 26 are a... They're a separate thing to me. Like, they just... They, they're stylistically completely separate. They have... They do not further that story at all. The story remains just 100% unresolved. In these two, you get some psychological resolution for Shinji, but because it's completely detached from the actual plot, it feels very tenuous, and, and I'm not sure what it really means... I know there is this movie out there, so maybe this is a moot criticism. But since you asked me to just watch the show and judge the show on its own yes. merits, it's it's fucking gibberish. It's utter fucking gibberish. And I find the the end like I again I find it kind of bemusing, and I like the audacity of these last two episodes. But at the same time, like this isn't what the show is about. This is because it's basically taking the end of Gundam. Because the end of Gundam is Amuro. Um, you know, coming home to all the people on the white base and telling Lala, like, I can be here and I can, you know, live in the world and be happy with these people. But that is an earned ending. And it's an earned ending in part because while there are characters on the white base who are a little abusive towards Amuro at the beginning, we've mentioned Captain Bright. Captain Bright just so happens to grow and change as a character and earn Amuro's respect and becomes a better person. You cannot say that about anyone else in the world of Evangelion. Amuro is a well-rounded three-dimensional individual who has not been going in plot cul-de-sacs for 52 episodes or 26 episodes as the case is in Eva. He's someone who's had a clear amount of psychological realism that is continuous from episode 1 to episode 43. You just 
you just fundamentally do not have that here. And so it doing that same ending just kind of strikes me as bullshit of it's like the ending has to be about how bonds with other people is the truest, you know, sign of a person. And I'm like, that's not what Evangelion is about. At no point in the first 24 episodes is that what Evangelion is about because it's about this horribly abused little boy who is being abused and manipulated by everyone else in his life. And and I don't ever buy that he has a genuine friendship with any of these people. I don't ever buy that he should have a genuine friendship with these people. I don't buy that this is his family. I don't buy that this is his problem. So, like, selling me this, you know, Persona-style, Gundam-style ending where, like, it's all about the friends you make and opening yourself up. I'm sorry. That's gibberish compared to the rest of the show. It's just not what it's about. It's not what's earned. Some people disagree with me on this. That's fine. I don't buy it. And I rolled my eyes at the end of it. I It's dumb. It's just dumb. This is what I wanted. This is why I wanted us to be able to do this before you watch End of Eva. <laughs> because if you watch End of Eva, I just feel like we wouldn't even really talk about these two episodes. But this is the fucking TV show. This is what aired. Like, this is... I mean, yeah. you know, they, they announced the movie shortly after. The movie came out one year after the show finished airing. Um, but, like, that was a year where people were like, well, this is the end of it. And if you watch the TV show and never went to go see the movie... This is what you got. Yeah. And, you know, there's an entertaining audacity to it, but I don't know. It's not a finished show. It's not It's not a finished product. And maybe, again, maybe that doesn't matter because they did go back and finish it. And Anna went back and actually redid the whole thing a second time with the rebuild movies that are still coming out. So maybe this is a dumb thing to complain about. But just from my standpoint of watching the 26 episodes as they're presented in a row on Netflix... Where it then, you know, shoots you back to the main screen and it doesn't autoplay anymore. Uh, I was bemused, but I also felt a little bit like the, the, the show just clearly has some storytelling ADHD where it's about one thing for a while and then it's about another thing for a while. And then at the end, whether it was due to budget or whatever, they did not make an attempt to finish the story they were telling. Yeah, because I feel like they it's also, else. I feel like sometimes people use the budget thing as like this excuse. It's like, I mean, dude, Mobile Suit Gundam was supposed to run for 52 episodes. They completely had to rewrite everything about how that show ended because it got cut down yes. to 39 and then they desperately had to like, like beg for them to be able to get four more episodes to get to 43. Like lots of shows get fucked in that department. And lots of shows find, like, creative ways to get around it. And in some places, like, it is the, like, Eva running out of space that ends up making some of the endings, like, the last set of episodes more compelling than what came before it. So in some ways it is enhanced by that. But then it just feels like the problem was there was nothing coherent at the basis. At, like, the foundation of the show was built on such, like, shifting sands that once, like, push came to shove, once their backs were against the wall, there was nothing for them to fall back on. It's like, this is the core of what the show is about. We'll just have to do a very stripped-down version of that. Because when Gundam was in that exact same scenario, there was such a solid foundation for the show that they ended up making what, like, I think is probably a much better ending than they would have had had their episode count not been cut. And so for me, it's like, it sucks that they, you know that the production was um, like poorly managed and all that kind of stuff and that they ended up in this scenario. Um, I mean, obviously they ended up making shit tons of money off of it and then managed to make a movie. So I don't feel that bad about that part. But for the TV show, it like kind of sucks that you couldn't do the full thing the way you originally intended. But anything about the like original intentions around Eva 
got like jettisoned probably sometime around episode 10 anyways. It's just like it was a poorly managed project, not just from the perspective of money and, t- and like scheduling, but just in terms of like writing and pre-planning. It just doesn't ever seem to have been there. And you can really tell by the time you get to the end. Yeah, I mean, because I also want to say that the, the myth that this was just they ran out of money and this is what they had to do is not fully even backed up by the people who made the show. So, like, on the Wikipedia page, and I haven't done deep research beyond this, but there's at least this attributed quote. uh, Toshio Okada, who worked on the show, he said that, you know, while it wasn't only a problem of schedule or budget, it was also that Anno couldn't decide the ending until the time came. That's his style. So part of it was, like... They, like, they could have made more than this. Like, like people on the show have said, like, like, you know, part of it was also just... And I think you see that in that, you know, episode 24 has a preview for an episode that was never made. Like, Anno couldn't really decide where they to go with it, and so they did this thing at the end. And, yeah, it's... It is problematic, and that's fine. You know, if you love it, you love it. And if End of Eva is satisfying, I don't know, I haven't seen it, then maybe it's not that big a problem. But, you know, it is what happened, and it's it's a very fascinating incident. But I think the other thing to just note is that even if 25 and 26 had been a more conventional conclusion, the I feel like the problems of, like, scheduling and narrative pace and all of that, they're so clearly there well before you get to the end. It's the problem is not they ran out of money for the last two episodes. There was a lot building up to that. Yeah. So I think we're we're starting to wind down here. Are there any major thoughts you have about Eva that we have not addressed, Jonathan? Um, I mean, I want to stress again that it is brilliantly well directed. And, you know, I, I would criticize the writing pretty heavily. Anno's direction feels very much like a young up-and-comer who like kind of knows what he wants and and how to get it and it's bold enough not to like listen to the rule book which you get sometimes with like young directors doing their first big project um and it's brilliant like especially the sense of scale i think in a lot of the battles between the evas and the angels is something i have not quite well i've seen it because there's stuff that eva influenced like a pacific rim or something like very clearly but seeing how they do it and how they project that sense of scale is in, is incredibly impressive um should we talk about the music oh yeah yeah i mean the music's very very good it, you know the main thing i mean the, so the best thing about it is obviously just cruel angels thesis but then in terms of like the in show score you have the decisive battle track which is a classic um and that is one of the ones that is the most clearly and heavily plagiarized. Um, it's pulled from a James Bond movie. like the music is very good i love that decisive battle track it's so good that they just fucking use it for shin godzilla it's just in that movie um still the same plagiarized song (laughs) used it in two totally different projects yep um but yeah it's it's like it's a really good solid score um it would be nice you know if you plagiarize something that you give credit to or or pay the people who actually created the stuff that you plagiarized but hey it's good it's a good song good music I think it's wild that it's still in there all the way through fucking worldwide Netflix distribution, but they couldn't use the Fly Me to the Moon tracks. That's kind of wild, you know? 
yeah, somehow they got away with it, and they continued to get away with it. Um, it's 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 like you know that scene with Jesse near the end of Breaking Bad. It's like he can't keep getting away with it. You gotta stop these people from just plagiarizing this fucking James Bond soundtrack. Like, how does how do we just let this happen? Like, how can I stand up there teaching high school English with a straight face and say? You can't plagiarize when fucking Hideaki Anno and all the people involved with the Avengers of Gelly keep on making money. They stole fucking music from other stuff. It's a, I don't actually mind. It's fine. James Bond's producers have plenty of money. Um, just like I don't mind that Gundam F91 has very, very clear John Williams ripoffs in it. It's fine. Yeah. But because also that decisive battle music, wherever it's taken from, it's very good. And when that comes up, I, I perk up a little. Yeah, so, okay, we talked about the music, the animation, the characters, the voice acting. I don't know. I feel like I've expressed my frustrations. Um, uh, do we want to go back to, I think where we might want to end, Sean, is back to this question that we've come to periodically. Is Neon Genesis Evangelion a deconstruction of the mecha anime genre? Why or why not? And should we also, like, maybe give an example of what we mean by something that is actually deconstructivist? Sure, yeah. Because, I mean, I feel like our answer is both no, right? Like, I don't feel like it's deconstructive. No. Um, I feel like Mobile Suit Gundam is a good example of one that is, like, deconstructivist of the super robot genre in the sense of yes. it takes here are a lot of the basic fundamental elements of this genre that is about um, adolescent characters getting inside of these giant um, war machines. And in super robot stuff, it is, we're having fun. We're fighting like weird aliens that come down. I mean, which is basically the angels. It's like Ultraman type stuff. Um, and it's like fun, goofy action um, with these child protagonists. And then um, Tomino takes that and transplants it into a grounded, like hard sci-fi style setting where the themes become about should the should these tropes occur in the story in a more grounded setting what are the actual impacts that they have what kind of psychological impacts do they have on um the protagonist like what does it mean to inflict violence with with like you know mechanized warfare like taking those things that are just assumptions built into um the the tropes of the genre that people kind of skip past um, to set up their show and then sort of pulling those back and saying, well, what do these actually mean? What are the real impacts of um, these kinds of tropes in a more grounded version that doesn't just kind of dismiss them um, and kind of jump over them? Yeah, I think the most famous example of deconstructive media in modern pop culture is Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' Watchmen. Mm. We've talked about Watchmen many times. Watchmen is like the ultimate example of media genre deconstruction of taking superhero comics and really kind of peeling them apart where by the end they're kind of unrecognizable. Um, but all of that is from that basis in like more as a writer and Gibbons as an, as an artist having a really deep understanding of like golden age era and, you know, subsequent comics. Um, but same with Mobile Suit Gundam. Eva, like, what is it supposed to be deconstructing? Because if it's deconstructing the mecha anime genre then then what is it like what show is it specifically reacting to because the idea of the protagonist kind of not wanting to get in the mech and and being psychologically scarred from that and being depressed and that that had been done in four different full gundam shows at that mm -hmm. point plus all of the things inspired by gundam like that had been done a lot of the other things in here had they had been done and that doesn't make eva bad 
it just makes it not a deconstruction. And I and and where it does make it kind of bad is I think the show does think it's a little smarter than it is at points. Um, but it's I like I don't with everything you said I don't know if Hideaki Anno himself would call it a deconstruction like based on his knowledge of anime. Do you know what I mean? I've never I've never heard him claim that. Um, like I. In, like obviously like I don't know enough of like Japanese to know like Japanese terms for critical theory and stuff like that like I don't know if deconstructionism is a concept um that is like used generally in the way that Japanese people would discuss media or storytelling because it's not like it's some sort of inherent true thing about a genre or style of storytelling um but yeah I I don't think that Anna would claim it's some sort of deconstruction like the closest and this isn't a deconstruction like the closest is that it's like a genre mashup it's more of a genre mashup of kaiju style ultraman stuff with real robot gundam stuff like that's really what it is and that's not a it's not deconstructing either of those two genres it is just taking a lot of stuff that you'd normally associate with ultraman and then it's taking some like storytelling tropes you'd normally associate with gundam and putting those together um yeah like that's that's really what it feels like is is sort of like what it is doing with its genre in its storytelling setup yeah the word for that is pastiche i think is what we would call it um i think if you wanted to call evangelion a pastiche i could 100 percent believe that it's got a tarantino-esque quality to it in some places even i would say yeah um but deconstruction i think is the wrong critical word so there you go. So Sean, now that we've shit all over this critical darling um, and we've lost all our subscribers, <laughs> what do you want to talk about next? Do you want to do a podcast on gun control? Should we just do an abortion debate here? I mean, we, I assume no one's listening anymore. I mean, but we're not done, Jonathan, because we still have a whole fucking movie. I, I want you to watch End of Evangelion so we can talk about it. Um, before we watch End of Evangelion, to end this podcast, Jonathan, I just want to ask you a series of questions to see if you can answer these questions about Neon Genesis Evangelion for me. And then I'm going to ask you the same series of questions after we watch End of Eva and see if you can answer any of them then. It's basically a pre-test, post-test. This is just legitimately me being curious. And if you asked me the answer okay. to a couple of these questions, I don't know if I could answer them. Um, so I am excited. This is, this is Sean Chapman, high school teacher, coming yeah. through in full force. So first question, Jonathan. <laughs> what is the Human Instrumentality Project? I have no idea. All right. That's never explained. What is Gendo trying to do? I think the most I could say vaguely is he is doing something to try to resurrect his dead wife. And I think that's part of what Ray is there for. I don't know how or particularly why because he doesn't seem like a person who's actually capable of love. And I don't really understand why his wife was in love with him. But he has some sort of animal magnetism. So yeah, I, there's something related to that, but I don't know beyond that. Okay, wife stuff, I guess is the answer to that question. All right. <laughs> yes. So then, speaking of wife stuff, moving on. Um, what was Yui Hikari, Shinji's mother, what was she trying to do? I have no idea. Okay. Uh, re- maybe research all the Dead Sea Scroll stuff. Maybe, but I don't know. I, d- I also don't know what killed her. So. All right. What is the spear of Longinus? I mean, it's a big-ass spear that's stuck in Adam, but it's not actually Adam. It's Lilith, I think we learn. Um, I don't really know its importance or what it does, but he does throw it up, and then it goes into the moon, or it's orbiting the moon, and that's kind of a cool visual. I I don't know. Is there is there, like, some, like, was... My, my, they never go into this, so I don't know, but it feels like there was some kind of, like, Atlantean society, like Atlantis, 
that like all this came from like the spear and the the people and like there was some like underwater world before maybe that but i don't know here's this is a part of the, the quiz this is me curious do you know what like the actual world historical spear of lunchinus is no okay. it's, it's the spear that the roman dude used to stab the side of jesus when he was crucified I should probably know that, but no, it I doesn't. Don't. It that doesn't impact anything about what it means on the show. Just in case you're wondering. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. Next question: <laughs> What is third impact? Well, second impact was the cataclysm that led to the current state of the world, right? Yes, which is good because my next question was going to be: What were the other impacts? So you know what second impact is. I don't know what the first one was. Um, the third impact is, I assume, the next cataclysm. And I think they state that it will happen if one, because the angels, I think, are trying to get to Adam, the like dead body they have on the cross. And if an angel reaches Adam, it will trigger the third impact. And that's why they're worried when Kowaru is going down there. And that's why Shinji has to kill him. Now, what the third impact will be, I'm not sure, because I actually don't really know what the second impact was either. Because like they make references to what sounds like generic sort of global warming stuff. But I don't know what specifically, like, because the second impact was not a literal impact of, like, a meteor hitting the Earth. They told people that, but it was a lie. So I'm not sure what would happen if there was a third impact, but that's what they, that's, that's, that's what I know. Okay. What is Adam? I don't know. What is Lilith? I don't know. Lilith, so Adam, to my the best of my knowledge, is, like, is he, like, the, the first angel who arrived on Earth, I think is what Adam is? Lilith... I'm sure they mentioned her. I don't remember the Lillian stuff coming up until episode 24 when we meet Kowaru. Um, and then they start saying that. And I guess Lilith is like the counterpoint to Adam. But uh, no, I have no idea. All right. What are angels? <laughs> I mean, they're the big, you know, Lovecraftian monsters that keep attacking. Where they're from? I don't know. What they want? I don't know. Were they created by humans? Maybe. It seems perfectly plausible that like Gendo engineered all of this based on what I've seen so far. But no, I, I don't know what the fuck they are. Okay. What are the Lilim? I have no idea. Okay. They, they seem to be more associated with humanity. Like they are the humanity side. Like there's the angels and then there's the humanity. But how that actually breaks down in real world terms, I don't know. All right. What is Sele or Seal, however you want to pronounce it? Hmm. They're the evil, shadowy organization that uh, seems to be like a shadow world government. So they're like the council of people in like a Doctor Strange love style room. And then over hologram, they communicate via their big slabs. Uh, and they seem to be in charge of everything. And Gendo is sort of working to undermine them. And they have a different plan than Gendo, but they're also kind of work together. Okay. What are the Evas? The Evas are big robot. They're, they're not purely robots. They are taken from the DNA or something cloned out of the first angel, which I think is Adam. And they have made them into big bioweapons that they have like put machinery in. And then the pilot goes in and like his neural, his or her like neural links are hooked up. And so he can move the body. But the Eva still clearly has underlying biological matter that can think and act on its own if shit gets real. Um, this one I actually feel like I have a better understanding of than most of your other questions. Okay, good. What is the door of Guth? I don't even... Was that mentioned? 
I don't. Re- I think it's mentioned once in the TV show. It's mentioned again in one of my favorite moments in End of Eva. So I just wanted to make sure the door of Guff is planted in your head. The door of Guff one hundred percent sounds like something in a Stephen King book. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like what where like it came from, and they have to go through the door of Guff to find uh, the fucking turtle to defeat it. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, no, I have no, no idea. What is the Black Moon? No idea. Okay, the final and most important question. What the fuck is Pen Pen? I don't know, but Pen Pen... Well, here's what I'll tell you, Sean. Pen Pen is my favorite character in Neon Genesis Evangelion. That's who Pen Pen is. Is he a real penguin? Is he a robot penguin? I never found out. I even asked Twitter, and no one told me, because I assume there's not an answer. All I know is Pen Pen has the most personality, and every time of any character on Eva, and every time he showed up, I smiled. I like Pen Pen. If I were to get one piece of Eva merchandise, it would be a Pen Pen to sit on my desk. Pen Pen is cool, and I hope he is instrumental in End of Eva, but he probably isn't. I don't even know if he's in there, because he just gets sent away um, at some point, right? He's just not in the show yeah. anymore. I one of my favorite scenes in all of Eva is when Shinji is in the uh when he goes to like the hot springs and he's in the hot spring bath and he like pen pen like parachutes in there with him. That's fucking awesome. They like ship pen pen and he comes and hangs out in the bath. That's great. Yeah, pen pen's great. I like I have no idea what the fuck pen pen is or why he's in the show. <laughs> I have no that's that's like the most endearing mystery to me of Neon Genesis Evangelion. I think when I looked it up on the Eva wiki, I think it was like the manga explained something about him. I think he's like a cyborg penguin from like a biological experiment or some shit that Misato just has. But I don't know. I, I think Pen I think Pen Pen is like to this show what Haro is to Gundam. Yeah, except for or like Haro is like a robot that Amro made. Pinpin is like a sapient penguin that just happens to be there with no explanation. So it's like, yes. I agree that he's the mascot style character, but Eva 1 does not seem like a show that is supposed to have a mascot style character. And 2, the mascot style character's existence in the world of Eva is a massive question mark that's explained by nothing in the show. But I'm glad that he's there. Yep. <laughs> So is that the end of my test? How did I do? Okay, yeah, like about about as much. I think there's a couple of things you maybe missed that is explained in uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, the TV show, um, that I think is more spelled out in in the movie, from what I remember. So um, we'll see some of those. We'll see how I do. Some of those are questions you won't be able to answer because um, they're questions that also I can only vaguely sort of half answer. And and some of like some of the stuff about Adam and Lilith, I mostly know just by reading it on a wiki. Um, and it was like, oh, I guess that's what that line was supposed to mean. That's weird. Um, but yeah, you know, Eva's, I just think one of the things about Eva that nobody talks about is how none of the world building or the like A-level plot makes any fucking sense at all. And that's not something that the movie actually is going to solve for you, which is why I want to do the test again. Well, it'll be fun. So this was part one. There will very much be a part two, maybe next week, maybe the week after that. Um, we don't have a ton to watch, just this one 90-minute movie, so that's great. Um, yeah, so that's the end of, of our EVA podcast so far. There will be a part two. There will probably also, at some point in the future, be a part three when all the rebuild movies are yeah. out, because I am genuinely curious about those. Um, and, you know, uh, Anno has... It's been eight years, but he's almost there. <laughs> he's almost finished. Yeah. 
Um, and we'll see those when those are out. So, yeah, I, I hope, you know, if you got to the end of this and you love Eva, thank you for listening to us shit all over your beloved show. Um, I am glad people like it. I love the enthusiasm. But um, I hope you still like yeah. us. Yes, yeah. So this is the end of Neon Genesis Evangelion episode one of this podcast, but it is not the end of Evangelion because the end of Evangelion is the movie Evan- end of Evangelion. But that's not actually the end of Evangelion because they made more movies after it, which we'll get to eventually. But this is the end of us talking about Neon Genesis Evangelion until we talk about the end of Evangelion. See you next time. Tune in for more fan service. Yeah, great. Love.